This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Also, make sure to check out and subscribe to our YouTube original channel, UCTV Prime, available only on YouTube at youtube.com slash UCTV Prime. This UCTV podcast is sponsored in part by Audible.com, your destination for the widest selection of digital audiobooks available, including many by guests you've heard here on UCTV. Audible.com is offering UCTV podcast listeners a free 30-day trial subscription and one free audiobook download. Just visit audibletrial.com slash UCTV to sign up. That's audibletrial.com slash UCTV. And thanks. Good afternoon, and thanks for coming coming out. I'm, I'm going um, to talk mostly about uh, where we've been. Uh, in this process, uh, because the uh, the presentations you're going to see this afternoon are the result of of a lot of work on the team's part parts. Uh, but I want to start first with with a little bit about the about the new venture competition. Uh, we we introduced uh, a new theme to the competition this year, and we're branding the competition, uh, even though it's still a part of the TM the technology management program. We're calling it the UCSB New Venture Competition in, in recognition of the fact that anybody from, from, from anywhere in any school in UCSB can participate. Uh, the logo, you'll notice the, uh, the, the UCSB logo kind of incorporated in there uh, is, meant, uh, is meant to, uh, to emphasize the, the, uh, the wave. Make waves. We want our entrepreneurs, we want our teams to think about uh, not just how they can grow a business, but how they can change uh, the way things work today. Uh, so the make waves part of it is uh, is important. And then the legacy. Uh, we're gonna. Um, I know we have a couple of uh, past new venture competition winners uh, coming today. Uh, if you are a past new venture competition winner, we will backdate the logo for you. Uh, so that you can put it on your website and recognize the fact that you that uh, that you were a part of this competition and that you and that you were uh, a winner in the competition. Anybody know what the definition of uh, of an entrepreneur is? Uh, I have a favorite definition. I couldn't find the reference to it, but it, it it goes something like this: An entrepreneur is someone who starts a business, even though the facts overwhelmingly suggest that he or she is destined to fail. And uh, a serial entrepreneur, which even gets sillier, is someone who does this over and over and over again. So that reminded me of an Albert Einstein quote. Uh, he defines insanity as doing the same thing over again and expecting a different result. So it, I'm not sure what Albert Einstein thought about entrepreneurs, but by association, he thinks we're crazy, um, which I take as a compliment. Um, the process that we went through uh, in this competition uh, was uh, in January. The reason why I bring up that quote is uh, we need to make, I need to make the point that these students do not get credit for this competition. It's not a class. We make them come once a week at 7.30 in the morning to listen to a lecture. 
They have to come to the TMP offices to meet one-on-one with mentors. We make them write uh, executive summaries, go through financials, uh, do an awful lot of extra work in addition to their course load. So it sounds a little crazy sometimes. But we had 46 teams this year. We had 140 students this year volunteer or volunteer to be part of this competition. All for a chance, about a 2% chance of winning a prize. Uh, But when you talk to them about why they join, it's not for the prize. They're interested in being entrepreneurs, they're interested in starting up businesses, and we want to be here to help them do that. I'm going to go through this quickly. This is a list of the majors of the students that participated in the new venture fair, the step before this. Uh, the point being that this is it's a school of engineering program, but it's open to the entire campus. So we literally get, we get, we've probably had just about every major on campus at one point in time or another. It's a very diverse program. So the format for today. Uh, the judges have already received written executive summaries and financials of each team. They've had a chance to review them. Uh, each team is going to have 10 minutes to do its best to convince you that their business idea is worth an investment. Uh, after those 10 minutes, the judges will have a chance for Q&A. Uh, one question each. We're gonna, we've got, we've got a, a pretty long agenda ahead of us, so we're going to try to run through it as quick as we can. Uh, and uh, once all the, the presentations are over, uh, the judges will go into a room, deliver, deliberate, decide on the prizes, and then uh, while they're doing that, you're going to convene to the patio off to your left, where we'll have a reception. Uh, when the judges have come to their, their decisions, they'll join you out there and we'll announce who the winners are. These are the evaluation criteria that the judges are using to evaluate the businesses. They're the same evaluation criteria that we gave to the students in January. But essentially what we're looking for is, uh, is, is the best, the best business, fully developed business plan. Uh, that you've thought about the business model, you've thought about the product, you've thought about where in, in the market you're going to be disruptive. Uh, but it's these criteria that, uh, that we focus on, um, the structure of the business. These are the awards that we're, uh, that we're, that we're giving out to, uh, tonight. Uh, first of all, I, I, I want to I thank the, Enter- the MIT Enterprise Forum for sponsoring our first Social Entrepreneurship Award. Uh, this award was uh, decided a little in advance of the finals. It was decided at, uh, uh, after, right after the new venture fair. But uh, this award goes to the team that had the best social uh, mission at the heart of its business. Uh, then we uh, are dividing our teams into two tracks, tech push and market pull. The tech push businesses start with the technology and uh, develop the technology first and then identify the market that's interested in, in that new way of doing things or, or that new product. Uh, market pull starts from the other direction. They identify a market need and then they typically adapt an, an existing technology uh, to fill that market need. Uh, th- there are a lot of characteristics of businesses that, that, that make this a, a good way to, um, to divide the, uh, the contestants. So we will announce third, second, first place in each track. 
Uh, once we've done that, we will pull the two first place winners back on stage, and we will give one of them a grand prize. Because this is an entrepreneurship co co competition. We want to get to one, one uh, best of the best, and uh, that's how we're going to do it. Uh, then we're also, we also have a People's Choice Award. Uh, you're going to participate in helping us select the People's Choice Award. Uh, this being the technology management program, we're going to use some technology to do that. You're going to use your cell phones uh, to vote for your favorite presentation. And uh, I'll talk more about that once the presentations are done. We need to thank our sponsors. We have two sets of sponsors. One is the in-kind sponsors, who are uh, offering up their services to the winning teams to help them get off on the right foot, because a lot of these, a lot of these teams are very serious about starting up businesses. Uh, so we have a, I, I don't have time to go through all of them, but uh, we have a, a, pretty, uh, a pretty diverse group of, um, of in-kind sponsors. And I also want to thank our contributing sponsors. Uh, as Bob said, this is a self-supporting competition. Uh, the prize money, the, uh, the uh, other expenses of the competition are borne by our sponsors, and we are very thankful uh, to them for that. So we're going to dive right into the team pitches. So we're going we're gonna to do these uh, in, in re relatively rapid succession. And, and I, it's my honor to, uh, to introduce our moderator. Uh, Henry Dubroff is, is uh, in many ways the face of business in, in Santa Barbara. Anybody who's in business has probably read the, uh, the Pacific Coast Business Times at one, at one time or another. Uh, that's Henry's baby. He's, uh, he's a successful entrepreneur in his own right. Uh, he started... Uh, he started the Pacific Coast Business Times, uh, in his words, in 1999 with a leased sob, a checkbook, and a business plan. Uh, so uh, Henry is going to uh, moderate uh, from, from here on in, and um, I'm going to keep time. So I'm going to hand it off to Henry. I, I think there, we're going to learn many lessons about entrepreneurship today. Um, the first one being, be kind to the judges. So uh, I think we should give our judges a nice round of applause. And uh, the other thing you'll learn is that I have this ancient uh, iPhone. It's a 3G, but it does keep time. And I'll be watching, and, we'll be wa and Mike will be watching. So we will let you know. Uh, I'll be sitting down there when you have three minutes, one minute. And when you see me walk up, uh, complete your sentence, and the judges will be very happy, I guarantee you. Um, so will I. Okay, so we are going to introduce uh, our first team, or our first flight of teams. And uh, I, this is the marketing pull team, right? And so we have Birdies, Gefinity, and Speckle. So, gentlemen, come on down. Hi, we're Birdies. Our smartphone app, social network, and bird alert service are designed for the complete solution for bird watching. What does that mean? Bird watchers face several problems. They need to identify birds, collect and share their bird sightings, and locate rare birds. Let's start with the first problem. Have you ever seen an interesting looking bird and wonder what kind it is? Well, you're not alone. 
In the U.S., there are over 48 million bird watchers, more than several other well-known recreational markets. They spend $23 billion per year on binoculars, books, and even $30 smartphone apps. Trying to answer that question, what is that bird? For context, the golf market spends $26 billion per year obsessed with birdies of a different kind. <laughs> so what is that bird? The identification problem is actually hard. 74% of bird watchers can only identify one to 20 species of bird. Additionally, unless you're already a dedicated bird watcher, the tools to do so are expensive and difficult to use. Here's a specific example. This is the most popular birding app for the iPhone. It sells for $30 and has over 30 features to look for birds. I've talked to casual bird watchers who bought this app and never use it because it's so difficult. You even have to manually enter your location on a device that has built-in GPS. That all changes with the Birdies mobile app. Let's see how easy it can really be to identify this bird. Birdies knows where you are, what time of year it is, and even what birds have recently been seen in your area. Before you even start the search, the app knows what birds you're likely to see. Paired with our nine grid search, identifying birds is as easy as dialing a phone. Anyone can identify birds right away. Let's start by identifying this bird. Obviously, it's a bright green bird, so let's choose color. We'll select green. It plugs back in so you can see where you've been. You can also see down at the bottom, we're down to 10 birds on our list. But let's choose another feature. It's a pretty good size bird. It's huge here. Okay, but huge is not one of our options. It's been removed because they're actually aware of what birds have been seen recently in your area, and irrelevant options are removed. He's obviously not a very small bird, so let's click on medium, and there you have it. He's an Amazon parrot. Instead of costing $30, our app is free to use for anyone with a smartphone that's connected to the internet. Identification is just the first problem. After you identify your bird, you want to remember what kind of bird it is. If you're like me, remembering is hard, and it's especially difficult because there are 900 species of bird in North America alone. Dedicated bird watchers keep a life list, like this paper life list. But carrying a separate list, marking up your books, or remembering until later is difficult. So difficult that 10% or less of bird watchers currently keep a life list. Not because they don't want it, it's just too cumbersome. That also changes with the Birdies app. As soon as you identify a bird, you can collect a sighting by pressing the Spot It button. You'll never forget where, when, and what birds you saw. That data is sent to us at Birdies, and we can use it to improve the searching capabilities of our device. Birdies is the only app that gets better with everyone's use. Birdwatching is also a social activity. The more eyes you have, the more birds you see. Meeting up with other people requires knowing other birders, taking a class, or trying to connect with somebody on a forum. Finding people to birdwatch with can take as much time as finding the birds you want to see. That changes with our Birdies social network. Your sightings from the app are automatically posted to your profile. Now you can share your experience with others, you can connect with other local bird watchers, and even compete comparing your life lists. Our built-in game elements will make this competition even more fun and engaging, and this is free for anyone. As you build your life list, you'll face one more problem. Finding those rare birds gets more and more difficult. It's like trying to find buried treasure without a map. This is the bird location problem, and it's especially difficult because unlike buried treasure, birds are transient, here today and gone tomorrow. That's why we've built our bird alert service. 
Bird Alerts notifies you when a rare bird has been seen near you. Tailored to your interests, it uses data both from our Birdies app and other crowdsourced bird information to keep you up to date. Our products and services are the complete solution. They help bird watchers with all four problems of birding. Identify, collect, share, and locating rare birds. The Bird Alerts, Birdies app, and Birdies social network share bird sightings data to improve bird watching at every step. They also work in concert to make us a valuable and fast-growing business. We have a freemium business model. Our free birding app is ad-supported for anybody who's connected to the internet. You can also download a paid version of the app to your iPhone or Android phone with additional features and without ads. While we make some money on the ads and the sale of the app, the main goal is to collect more data for our bird alert service. This increases the value for the people with the highest willingness to pay. It, the apps also act as a funnel, allowing us to convert casual users to paying customers and eventually bird alert customers. The bird, bird alert subscription is our main source of revenue and is a steal for only $30 per year. Our app competition is vulnerable to the freemium model because they are currently reliant on app sales alone to make money. The bird alert service is built today on existing crowdsourced data and will go on sale next week. We can start making revenue today while we develop our Birdie smartphone apps. We have had great responses from our contacts with the local Audubon Society and have identified other regional partners, including business partners. In addition, we've already formed Ecolec LLC to take our Birdie's products to market. We expect to go rapidly. We'll be selling our products through the local and regional contacts we've made. After that, we will launch our app and our social network and after gaining um, that endorsement, we're going to try and get national endorsements as well as connect with strategic partners such as binocular manufacturers. Our strategy also relies on strong online marketing to gain users nationwide. What does it all add up to? We break even in month 10 with $120,000 in profit by the end of year one. Based on our conservative estimates, we expect $8 million in revenue by the end of year three. The large majority of our income comes from the Bird Alert subscription. By year five, we expect 25% of U.S. bird watchers to be using our app, mostly the free app, as you can see here. We expect 1.8% to have our Bird Alert service. Even so, that makes us $30 million in revenue. This is based also on 5% of users upgrading to the paid app and from, from the free app and 5% of those upgrading to our bird alert service every month, as well as the impact of our bird alert marketing on its own. We have the team to make this possible. My name is Jeff Simeon, and I'm CEO. I'm a bird watcher, and I designed birdies while getting my master's degree in eco-entrepreneurship at the UCSB's Bren School. We've assembled a team that includes Patrick Turner, a dedicated entrepreneur who runs his own internet marketing business, and Patrick built our bird alert system on his own. Our other partner is Thomas Quo, a computer vision PhD and experienced programmer who currently has a location-based Android app on the Android market. But we need your help. High quality images, sounds, and other data cost a lot of money up front. We would like $250,000 in initial funding, primarily to license these materials and then aggressively take our products to market. We are confident that we are building a disruptive birding app that helps the current bird watching market while growing that market in the US and abroad. What we are also building is a flexible platform that can be reskinned and applied to plants and other types of animals. 
We are dedicated in making the best birdwatching products possible. But even after that, the future is bright for us and the birdies platform. We are birdies where every bird counts. Thank you. Come on, go ahead. I'm not a birder, but I have a question. So uh, one thing wasn't clear to me. Are the photos of the birds part of the stock photography that comes with the app, or can I, as a user, take a picture of a bird that you know, I've seen for the first time, and then it becomes part of the network? So could I do something like Instagram where I, you know, I have my real name, and I take a photo of a bird, and then I get known as the guy who found the bird? Right. Yeah, actually, that's, that's, a great, um, that's a great point, and we were intending on including the picture um, it's not going to be a picture that you can then identify the bird, at least not initially. But it is a good backup identification mechanism if we have that picture. Unfortunately, taking pictures of birds with your smartphone is very difficult. As I'm sure if any of you have ever tried on the beach, they look beautiful, and then you take the picture, and it's this little tiny speck. We actually have some backup slides, but I don't know how that's going to work. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, that, that would definitely add some uh, precedence to you as the person who found that rare bird, for sure. Okay, Joanne? Yeah. Oh, tell me about your exit strategy. Excellent question. So um, our exit strategy depends on what kind of partnerships we form with other organizations. There's a possibility that we could exit to a bird conservation organization um, or some other sort of nonprofit like uh, National Geographic might be interested in this since we're creating really interesting maps from, from the bird information. But more likely, we'd have an exit strategy that would involve um, a manufacturer of goods for bird watchers, such as Nikon or Swarovski, who make high-quality um, scopes and binoculars and that sort of thing. KT is even a bird seed manufacturer. You know, we're going to have a captive audience on our app and on our social network, so they might be really interested in acquiring us. Thank you. Uh, Tom? Jeff, what's been the uh, take-up with your competition in terms of users for the existing app center out there? Could you all hear the question? What, what's been the take-up or the acquire rate for competitors uh, for this app? Uh, so do you mean how, who have they been acquired by? No, no. The, the competition that's currently out there, yeah. you know, what's their user experience been in terms of their ramp-up experience? Okay. What slide? 38. 38. You can just type in the number. Okay, you'll have to show me how to do that later. <laughs> All right. So here's some examples of um, our competition. Tom, do you want to handle that? Um, so in terms of actual adoption, I've noted on the and for Android apps, the iExplorer Pro has between 100 and, and 100,000, 500,000 in the past 30 days. Um, recently, there has been a huge spike with iBirds because they did a, a price comp recent price drop. They ended up on the top, um, top in the top paid apps uh, in the Apple App iStore, Apple App Store. Um, as for actual usage, um, let's see, what do we have for you? Well, we do know that smartphone adoption has been increasing rapidly amongst bird watchers. In fact, NPR did a story this Monday on apps entering the, the birding market. But what's currently out there is not nearly as sophisticated or uh, adaptive as what we are going to be building. So we're confident that once we build this app, especially five years out when smartphone adoption is close to 100%, 
that everyone's going to be looking at, at their phone when they're going bird watching. Okay, one more question. Yeah, I, I had the same question Tom had, which is what the volume of downloads has been for your competition, sort of indicating the market for uh, you know, iPhone apps for birding. Yeah. Uh, the second question is, <clears throat> you mentioned there's 48 million birders. Mm -hmm. uh, and in, in your summary that we've received, you talk about there's avid and then there's more casual. Do you have any data that shows how that 48 million breaks down in terms of how often people actually go out and how, uh, you know, is it once a week? Because and, and, obviously that's going to be uh, indicative of, of, of your market is the, the more mm -hmm. frequent users or mm -hmm. birders, if you will, are going to be the ones that are going to be really your true initial target market. Absolutely. Absolutely. 32. 32. All right. There we go. So um, I, we've gotten our numbers from the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, who has a vested interest in how many bird watchers there are out there. And you can see that 42 million bird watchers bird in their backyard. There is overlap between these two categories, obviously. Away from home birders are 20 million people. Um, and we estimate that the avid birder make up over tw 2 million um, people in this, in this group. Uh, novice birders, who are people who have just started their own life list, make up 20 million. And um, more casual bird watchers, the type of person who has a bird feeder in their backyard, makes up 26 million. And I'm, I'm sorry if I missed this. What defines an average birder? Oh, an avid birder? Yeah, I mean, an avid, avid yeah, birder? Yeah, an avid birder would be somebody who goes out on a regular basis. How uh, regular? Travels, travels <laughs> long distances uh -huh. and keeps a life list of birds. Okay. A novice birder would be somebody who travels locally and maybe has considered keeping a life list. Okay, thank you. Thank you. A very good presentation, by the way. Thank you. Appreciate it. Well, what do you think the biggest risk is to the business plan looking forward? Uh, the biggest risk to our business plan moving forward, um, do we have a slide for that, too? I don't think so. Okay. <laughs> we have a lot of slides, maybe not one for that. The biggest risk for our business plan moving forward is the adoption of our bird alert system. Obviously, that's our bread and butter. And um, if there is not a large adoption of that, we'll have to look more into partnering with manufacturers um, and really the monetizing the advertising on our uh, social network, which we're initially launching without ads currently, um, and, and monetizing uh, the, the ad-supported app as well. We'll take one more question. When is the smartphone app coming out, and what's your uh, plan for user acquisition? Is it going to be across both iOS and Android? And, and if so, how do you get to you know, a million active users on phones? Great question. So in our first release, we're releasing, as you said, we're releasing Bird Alerts uh, now, or in the next week or two. Uh, our first app will be a web app, so that uh, we can get a wide uh, swath of users. And then after that, we'll be trying to localize in the Q2 for both Android and also iPhone. Uh, to get our users, our first step is to seek local endorsements. We've already identified the Santa Barbara Audubon Society. We've been speaking to them. And we've identified uh, the Conejo Valley Audubon Society and other regional groups. And that's always, always where we will start. Uh, after that, we have identified the companies and organizations such as the Audubon Society, the American Birding Association, uh, and also the corporations that we showed earlier that are potential exits that we'd like to partner with 
uh, either for advertising or just uh, some of them are interested in um, the data that we have. And we would love to partner with them and, and share our data. One, one last question. Uh, on the expense side, you know, one of your biggest expenses is your licensing fees mm -hmm. uh, and the eBird license. Uh, I think it's 13% of, of your profit because to, to eBird. How do you protect yourself long term that they don't try and, and uh, get a larger share for, for themselves? Do you have long term contracts in place uh, for the licensing? So that that's work? a great question. Um, and that's something that you guys maybe haven't been privy to. eBird, uh, who we're using for our data, uh, currently wants 13% of our profits um, to license their data. The nice thing is the data that we're collecting f via our app is coming to us. So that's our, that's our main protection, is that we're going to be generating our own data. The other thing is because eBird is associated with uh, school, they're not as much of a profit-seeking entity. Well, you know, we'll see. But, um, but what we're going to do is we're going to allow them to have our data. Uh, after it's stale. Bird alerts are not going to be as useful, say, a month out. So we'll give them that data and build a reflexive relationship that way, and we may be able to actually bring down the amount that they're asking for. The other apps that are currently using data from eBird don't have this reflexive relationship with them. Thank you. Thank you all very much. Can you think of the last great gift you gave? Not just an average gift, really a great gift. Can you think of the last great gift you received? If you're still pondering the answer to those questions, you're not alone. Frankly, gift giving is tough. Think of all the times you've been driving to a birthday party or a housewarming and stopped off on the way to pick up flowers or a gift card or any other gift that you know is last minute and they know is last minute. Well, now you don't have to. The greatest thing about Giffinity is that you will always have the opportunity to give a personal, thoughtful gift. I stand before you to present two things. On one hand, a revolutionary approach to the intimate world of gift giving. On the other, a state-of-the-art technology engineered to make sense of the social media world. Two elements combined into one beautiful package we call Giffinity. Mother's Day is coming up. Who loves their mom? Keep your hands up high in the air if you've already bought mom a gift. Oh, I saw a lot of hands go down there. That's okay, I'm in the same boat. But today we're gonna use Giffinity to help us out and find mom a gift. Oh. Hitachi, the new Giffinity. So anyways, what we're gonna do is you're gonna log in to Giffinity's mobile application, or you can go to Giffinity.com. So you can use your iPad, your Android, your Blackberry. You're gonna select your mother, that's the person we wanna give a gift to, and then you're going to answer five simple questions. Things like, what does she like to do on the weekend? What kind of food does she like? What is her clothing style? And what is your relationship with her? After you answer these five simple questions, Giffinity will suggest three beautiful gifts. Imagine three beautiful gifts right here. 
the algorithm. Gifinity's secret sauce to the intelligent gift concierge. Inputs come in through two ways. On one hand, social media input brings in information like likes, interests, groups she follows, as well as her gender and location. Okay, we're back. There's her beautiful gifts right there. That's information we pulled from Facebook up there, just a few examples, Justin Bieber cooking the notebook, and a whole bunch of other things we're not showing. Um, so information comes in from social media inputs, as well as these user-based questions. Gifinity then parses this information, assigns certain tags and an affinity using natural language search characterization with the help of Google and Wikipedia. All of this information goes back into the Gifinity engine, and Gifinity suggests a small pool of gifts specialized to your mother that she'll love. Taking all of the hassle and stress out of gift giving. So who's our market? Frankly, anybody who's ever struggled to find gifts. So everybody. The entire market in the US alone is $280 billion. That's twice the GDP of the Ukraine, two times. This is a market that has been taking leaps and bounds in the mobile and online industry for online purchases. We're gonna focus down our market a bit on the professionals and busy people in our lives. Those of you of the younger generation who use mobile internet applications, you busy people need help, find, need help finding the right gifts. You have a couple of kids, a couple of lovely kids that you pamper and bathe and feed three times a day. You work over, over 40 hours a week, and when you give a gift to your coworkers and friends, you don't wanna be embarrassed. So you spend hours searching for this gift. Time, you don't really have. We've hand-selected hundreds of vendors to ensure that when you use Gifinity, you have an exquisite customer experience. This ensures that when Gifinity suggests a gift specialized to you, it's of highest quality, and the person you're giving a gift to is guaranteed to be happy. Here's a snapshot of our competitive landscape. You can see Gifinity up there in the top left. Shopicat and, and Wantful are our two strongest competitors. Shopicat is a product of Walmart. It's a suggestion service, and it uses Facebook for its likes and interests and background information. But the technology is fairly low tech, and it only suggests Walmart goods. Wantful, on the other hand, aggregates high-end vendors, and it's also a suggestion service. But they have a very small pool of vendors, and when I personally, when I personally did the Wantful suggestion for myself, they suggested a wooden spoon. Not exactly what I'm looking forward to this Christmas. Here's a snapshot of our total revenues and net income. Essentially, we're a $100 million business over five years. I'd like to point you to these numbers right here, the individual gift purchases. This isn't number of clients, this is individual gift purchases. And you can see that with incremental increase in these gift purchases, our total revenue and net income soar. Small increase gift purchases, huge increase revenue. We can do this because we have no inventory and low cost of goods sold. Now we hold no inventory because when you purchase your gift through us, 
we'll process your payment, and then our vendors will send the gift directly to you in our branded packaging, of course. We're building a sustainable business. At the end of five years, we can see ourselves being acquired by any number of one of these contenders. If you think about it, we have two strong selling points. On one hand, we have Gifinity's strong brand, a list of exquisite vendors, and a powerful team. On the other, we have a unique clustering algorithm that can take social media data and suggest a unique gift or any other retail item. Imagine the power that could have for, uh, for a company like Amazon, who right now only can give you suggestions based on things you've bought. But maybe one day they'll be able to give you suggestions on things you need or things you want based on that information. Here's our awesome team. Michael Maskett down here is our CIO. He has a background in sales and marketing. He's also an entrepreneur. His sophomore year, he started a business that generated over $300,000 in revenue. Derek Barge is previously employed at CERN. He's also a physics PhD. He heads up our development department. Saif Savage, she's the brain behind the Gifinity algorithm. Her focus is in smart algorithms, and she's a computer science PhD. We find ourselves at the tip of the social media iceberg. Today, social media is used primarily for user interaction, and that information is leveraged for targeted advertising. There's so much more beneath the surface that is waiting to be accessed, and Gifinity is here to tap into that. So where are we today? Based on two years of PhD research, we've engineered a proprietary algorithm, we've built a fully functional website, and we've scoured thousands of vendors to select hundreds for our gift base. Ladies and gentlemen, Gifinity is ready to go live. I'd like to bring your attention to this fact. A wealth of opportunities exists in the gift-giving space. Gifinity is bringing innovation and state-of-the-art technology to a space that desperately needs it. Leveraging the infinite data of social media, Gifinity is simple, personal, and thoughtful. In a world of infinite possibilities, Gifinity helps you choose that one perfect gift. Thank you. Um, I have a question, but before I do that, I just want to congratulate you for handling that disaster with the projector really well. Yes. I think it was one of the best jobs. Yes. And I didn't see any sweats or anything. I mean, that was really well done. So. Um, I guess the question I have is, it's a very clever idea of marrying technology to gift giving and using the social network to do that. But if you think about the margins on your business, you talk about sort of 10 to 45% um, affiliate fees that you plan to extract from these uh, e-tailers that you're driving these leads to. Do you think that that's a sustainable business model? I mean, these e-tailers have low margins to begin with, and you know every single penny counts. Why would they give you you know, anywhere from 10 to 45% on every transaction. Yes. Hello. Okay. 
Uh, Kaval, that's, a, that's an excellent question, and um, we've narrowed down the, the percentage after talking to some vendors and actually negotiating. Um, <clears throat> we, we just signed our first contract. We've been negotiating with multiple vendors. Uh, the first contract we signed is for 20%, and uh, the, the reason we chose the higher-end vendors is because we're able to negotiate these types of prices as well as offer the best types of gift. So from our research, we found that 15 to 25% after you know, some negotiation as well as the fact that we have a very valuable proposition to these vendors, which is this. Ven uh, sh customers aren't shopping on our website. Once they get to our website and a gift is suggested, then their credit card in hand ready to buy it. So we're marketing to those affluent consumers and almost guaranteeing purchases once that comes up. Mind. Uh, are there any privacy issues with the acquisition of these uh, names and users? Uh, we've already tapped into the, the Facebook user base. The same way that uh, there's hundreds upon hundreds of other companies that do a similar thing where they tell you to log in with Facebook and they'll pull your information. Um, the only danger, I would say, is if Facebook changes their rules, which they do fairly regularly, and then it's in their best interest to keep everyone on board because they have all these companies tied into them, and it, it really creates their ecosystem. So, and is there anyone else besides Facebook that you're you know, pulling from right now? Uh, LinkedIn, Twitter, okay. Facebook, and we're, we're looking into things like StumbleUpon and other, other options as well. Go ahead, Tom. Yeah, I had the same question that Kevin all did on the, uh, on the commission structure, and it sounds like you're, you're honing that in, and you'll probably get more experience as you go forward. The, the other question I have is what, what's preventing some of the competitors that are already out, already out there um, from developing their same algorithm? You know, five questions, pulling in from social media, doesn't seem like that would be a huge barrier to others trying to replicate what you've, what you've built. Wantful already does the similar, you know, question, answer, and then suggest a gift format. The real secret behind Gfinity's success is going to be twofold. One is its algorithm. And we have a really powerful algorithm that's based on two years of PhD research that is suggesting very unique gifts based on all of these interests that we're, way, that we're able to weigh differently. On the other hand, it's going to be really our traction and marketing efforts. We're going to hit the ground running, and we're, going to, we're deeply integrated with social media right now. Every time you make a gift purchase, we give you an instant, uh, instant Gfinity money almost for your next purchase if you share it on Twitter or Facebook. So it's really opening the doors to exponential growth, and we're, you know, we're ready to launch with that. John? <clears throat> If I understand this correctly, in order to take advantage of um, a gift recipient's Facebook presence, then they actually have to give permission for this app to get access to their information. So if I wanted to give a gift to my brother using your service, I'd have to tell him to provide access. How, how would that, how does that take place? Yeah, so the, the current Facebook privacy model, you can actually give up your friend's likes. So, so it, it only takes permission from you. And that, uh, that's kind of surprising, but that, that's how it is. So, uh, so in other words, I can give permission for your application to have access to anybody in my friend's circles without that's, their permission. That's right, unless, you, unless your friends have changed the default uh, privacy settings, yes. I, I see, okay. 
Uh, and then the second question is, um, apart from the commission issue with your retailers that you are providing traffic to, I also see you're committing on their behalf to next day delivery and also a custom wrapping, and uh, which obviously increases their complexity of dealing with your orders. How is that going over with those potential with those retailers? Can can you all hear? Yes. Raise hands if you if. You, no, a few of you can't. So the question is, how do you deal with next day shipping and the Gaffinity custom wrapping? Uh, there's a couple of companies that we researched out there that are doing a similar thing, and um, one that just actually launched is called Karma, and they also use their own packaging as well as labels and whatnot, and they drop ship. Our, we have four criteria. Yeah, we have four criteria that allow us to work with a vendor. One is, like you said, you know, same-day delivery. The other one is the packaging. Um, obviously, this is assuming that we chose them as a high-end vendor. We also, um, you know, we're also negotiating returns, obviously, because we want the ultimate customer satisfaction. So if a customer wants to return it, we issue their money back, and then we've negotiated a contract with these individual vendors on the return policy. And the ones that we're moving ahead with have to agree to all of those. Yes, definitely. One more question? Yeah. How do you uh, refresh your vendor list? As you've selected some vendors, you know, they might go out of business or new people might come in. You know, do you, have you thought about how you might refresh that list on an ongoing basis? Yeah, definitely. Well, it's, it's actually a continuous process because uh, goods and, you know, new things come into style, new styles are coming in. Uh, you know, we'll sign contracts for a year with the vendor and then we'll reevaluate the position. We're going to have a lot of metrics that gauge the interest and the, because like I showed, we give three choices in each little pool. So if their gift is not being chosen, then there's some sort of discrepancy or, or problem in our little model. So we're always reevaluating. We have a team dedicated to choosing, hand choosing those vendors. Thank you. Okay, we have time for one more question, one or two more questions. Um, I'll exercise the moderator's prerogative uh, and ask you how how, you, how would you deal with quality control problems from a vendor? Um, how much contact it, and how do you prevent the customer from really having an issue with the vendor and not with you and you don't know about it and all of a sudden business starts to drop off or you start to get bad reviews on blogs and websites? So we decided to, to, the first step there is to, to try to control the ecosystem. And what we started with is we handle all of the payments in-house. So, so we'll, we, from the beginning, we'll have our own picture of the item that we, that we held in our own hands and were able to photograph. Then, towards the end of that process, we handle all the payments. So if there's any returns, there's no other company that those individuals toward, turn towards. It's our packaging, you know, they came to our website, they get emails from us, so, it, so all of their customer interaction is just with us. And then the goods are handled through us to the vendors. Okay, one more question. Uh, go ahead, Tom. Uh, the ShopiCat um, competitor that uses Walmart products only, are they owned by Walmart? Yeah, they're made in Walmart Labs, yes. They are. Okay, let's thank you, Gaffinity.
afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. I'm here to talk to you today about the importance of small businesses. Now, small businesses account for roughly 99.7% of all businesses in America, amassing to 27.6 million small businesses. These businesses uh, contribute 50% of our overall GDP and create 65% of American jobs. Clearly, they play an integral role in our American economic structure. So what's the problem? The problem is that 83% of these small businesses do not receive any funding at all. In an era where bank loans are scarce and it's impossible for a local entrepreneur to approach an angel investor or venture capitalist, we are in dire need of an alternative funding system. And that's where we come in. My name is Michael Inouye. These are my teammates, Michelle Nguyen and Samai Patel, and we are Speckle. We are an equity-based crowdfunding platform focused on funding your local businesses. Now, what is crowdfunding? In short, crowdfunding is the collective cooperation of a group of people who pool their money together to support a person, an organization, charity, political campaign, or in our case, businesses. There would be a four-step process that would work like this. First, a business would create an online profile and submit a funding goal. As the intermediary, we would perform a background check to make sure the business is legitimate. Third, investors would view their profiles and invest in the businesses if they're interested. And finally, if successfully funded, the funds would be transferred to the business and those investors become shareholders. Now. If you've been paying attention to the JOBS Act, or the Jumpstart Our Business Startups Act, you'll know that for the first time since the 1930s, our business model is legal. For the first time, uh, businesses are allowed to raise over $1 million annually on our website, and unaccredited investors can invest in a business. How big is this market? The market is huge. According to the SBA, there are 550,000 new businesses every year with an average loan size of $80,000. Multiply these two numbers together, there's a need for $44 billion of funding. Now the question is, is there a supply for this funding? I'm here to tell you, absolutely. There's $30 trillion of American money vested in long-term savings accounts, pension funds, stocks, and bonds. And that $44 billion need accounts for 0.14% of that $30 trillion supply. So yes, there is absolutely a need, and yes, there is a supply. And in this huge market, we're bound to have competition. Well-funded websites such as crowdfunder.com and wefunder.com are already in existence. But what's their mantra? The mantra is, be a part of the next big thing. Invest in the next big thing. They want to fund the next Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter, the next big tech company. So how are we as Speckle going to differentiate ourselves? We're going to crowdfund your local businesses. Why local? We believe a local investment is attractive for four reasons. First, from a business point of view, the absence of loan payments leaves a lot more room for working capital. And from a marketing perspective, if you have 200 people invested in your business, that's 200 people advocating, hey, Go to Michelle's Bakery, they have the best cupcakes in the world. From an investor's perspective, only a local investor knows their local demographic. 
I'm not going to invest in a sushi restaurant if there's 12 other sushi restaurants in my neighborhood, and I'm keeping my money close to me. I'm not investing in a business that's 300 miles away where I have no idea what's going on. Finally, the businesses can offer exclusive incentives for these investors. For example, if you are to invest $200 in my bakery, I'll give you 10% off in my bakery for the next two years. So we believe that these four reasons are going to drive traffic to our website. Essentially, we want to create the most easy-to-use, best-looking, and efficient website out there. And what I mean by this, I'll show you. Designed by our own product designer, Samai Patel, this is the homepage to Speckle. As you can see, a really clean, easy-to-use design. If I click Michelle's Bakery, for example, I'll get sent to a pitch page. On the pitch page, there'll be a video, an executive summary, basically background of the owner and what they're going to use this capital for. If I click on the timeline or document section above, I'll be sent to one of these pages. Here, you'll see a timeline, where the business has been, where it plans to go, a cap table, as well as financial projections for one year out, five years out. Basically, any information an investor would want to know before investing in this business. Essentially, we want to create the best-looking website, as I've shown here. And how we plan to enter this market? We want to launch our beta site in Santa Barbara, California. Santa Barbara for three reasons. One being a large demographic of wealthy uh, population. Two, 120,000 people, as well as a really strong entrepreneurial culture. We want to handpick our first eight businesses and set a standard for the kind of businesses we want on our website by helping them create their profile. We also want to target local organizations to recruit new businesses, such as the Santa Barbara Lead, and hire a PR firm to build us a strong community and social media presence. We're going to be using a business model similar to that of donation-based platforms like Kickstarter.com, who takes 5% of an overall transaction if funded successfully. So if a business is funded, we'll take 5% as a brokerage fee, as well as a 2.75%, which will go towards Amazon or PayPal, a funding portal so people know that they can give their financial information to a reputable company. With this business model, we plan to fund over 32 successful businesses after our first year, raising $183,000 in revenue. After expanding on a national scale locally, we believe that we can fund over 4,000 successful businesses after five years, raising $34 million in revenue. We believe we can do this because we have an excellent team. Myself, again, Michael Inouye, will be handling the marketing strategy. Michelle Nguyen will be handling our public relations. And of course, our product designer, Samai Patel, who designed the slideshow, as well as our website. We bring the energy, we bring the brand of Speckle, we bring the market research. We are also looking for a CEO with a securities law and financial background who will be the experience and the face of our company. We've also consulted with a number of professionals ranging from the former vice president of American Express to a crowdfunding expert to a web developer who will be developing our website when we're ready to launch. We're asking for $500,000 at 25% equity, which will be allocated towards web development, bringing this website to life, legal services, making sure we comply with the SEC, hiring our initial PR firm, which will do a majority of our marketing, and finally our day-to-day -day operations. 
our exit strategy is to either be acquired by a larger financial company or to pay out dividends within five years. Now, in light of recent legislation and evaluating companies such as Kickstarter.com, who have been operating for two years and now do over $150 million in transactions, the time to capitalize on this opportunity is right now. So give power back to your community. Invest in Speckle, the revolutionary new way to fund your local businesses. Thank you. I've got a series of questions, but um, first one would be, what percentage of the businesses that sign up for this you think would be startups versus existing businesses? I think initially it's hard to gauge because our number is the 550,000. That's all new businesses, and there's no number to account for you know, what businesses plan to expand. So I can't tell you exactly you know, what, the, uh, what the percentage would be, but I think initially it'd be mostly startups. The majority of them would be startups. And then how you decide which businesses actually go on the platform? I understand you do the business background or the background check and try and at least get credible people to come on. They've got to match the capital with whatever you're going to raise. But how do you decide who goes on, or does anybody get on as long as, long as they meet those initial criteria? As long as they meet the initial criteria of the background check and any regulations that the SEC sets forward, they will be allowed to go on our platform. However, we do want to say that we're going to handpick our first businesses in our first year because we want to set a standard, like we said, for the kind of businesses we want on our, on our website. We don't want you know, just to allow everyone. So we're, our first businesses are going to be picked. You know, with the opportunity for fraud to be pretty big in this emerging area, have you thought about how you protect yourselves as directors and officers and the insurance that you might need to protect yourself in case of lawsuits and so on, and built that into the model? Yeah, um, we actually looked into that, and that's why one of the biggest reasons we do local businesses is so it allows local investors to actually meet with the people they're giving their money to, who they're going to trust, who they're going to be working with for the next couple of years with their money. So that's why we think local businesses will be a lot more successful. And I also want to point out that um, donation-based platforms such as Kickstarter.com, Prosper, you know, a, a lending website, and Crowdcube.com, which is the biggest UK firm that does this equity-based um, system, and after over two years of operation and over $400 million in transactions, there have been zero cases of fraud. So it seems like there would be you know, this big opportunity, but I think there would be a lot of security measures in place to ensure that we can avoid those kind of things. Okay, go ahead, John. So, I, uh, good presentation. I really like the uh, regional twist. I think that's a good way to differentiate yourselves. Um, so, I hear you saying you're a pilot in Santa Barbara. Um, I have a, two questions. One is, how soon after that will you roll out in another region, and what are the criteria? Because obviously, you need a pool of investors and startups. And the second thing is, it's related. If I looked at your numbers, you, you want 180,000 of revenue in the first year. If you do the back, you know, do the math, that's 3.6 million about of, of raised capital for 30 companies. That's about a million plus per company. That's actually a lot per deal. How did you guys come up with those kinds of projections? Well, if I'm doing my math right. <laughs> yeah, our projections were based off of. Um, Analyzing uh, websites with similar models, such as Kickstarter, Donation Base, CrowdQ, which is equity based but is 
um, located in the UK, as well as Prosper, who focuses on lending. So we took those numbers, we took into consideration the number of um, profiles that were opened, as well as successfully funded projects, and we use those as, as a guideline to project our numbers. So can you tell me Kickstarter's average raise per transaction? Do you mean by average that Kickstarter profits? No, the average uh, money Investment. raised per Kickstarter deal oh, through it's, Kickstarter. It's approximately $50,000, but many go on to fund, get more than $50,000, so you're allowed to get sixty, seventy, eighty thousand dollars $80,000. But Kickstarter has more volume. They're going to have more projects, more, more project because it's donation-based. However, we're going to aim for very small numbers and get more investors who are interested in this platform. That's why we predict in the first year we can get 32 rather than a much larger number, such, that, such as what Kickstarter got. Yeah, we, um, I, I think those numbers are based off mainly the equity-based in UK, Crowdcube.com, who successfully funded about 24 businesses after their first year, and we just think we can do better. We can do 32. Oh. And, you know, in terms of volume, they had 830 p uh, pitch requests on their website after one year. So I think, you know, volume is not a huge deal. Right. I, I just am focusing on uh, dollars per deal, which obviously drives your revenue also. But thank you. Very. Thank you. Okay. Joanne? Yeah. Um, my big problem here is that most local businesses have no exit strategy and have no way of returning capital or profits to the investors. So one thing we're actually... Did you all hear that? Okay. So the first thing, as we mentioned in the slide, is that we want to offer invest, um, incentives for investments. In, um, for investments. So this really changes the mental equation when you're investing in a company. If you're going to get discount at a bakery that you might be getting coffee at or cupcakes at for the f next two years, it changes the mental equation you have to invest in this company. Not me. Uh, Can you get... Um, could, could the panel members get a little closer to their mic? Uh, so... We can hear. This is a real spirited discussion. Yeah. Keep going, Joanne. Yeah, um, but we're also looking into having um, businesses that come on our website mandate that after five years that the business offer the inv investors their money, um, whatever the valuation the company is, give a return on that. We're looking into this based on what role an intermediary or broker can play based on SEC regulations. So we're looking forward to talking to lawyers if this is a possible mandate that we can have on, um, on issuers. Yeah, I was just curious as to why you chose to go with an equity base uh, when local businesses rarely have, a, you know, rarely have an exit that, uh, that, that shows an, a return. So. Go ahead. I, I have a slightly different type of a question. So three of you are obviously very talented. You made it through the finals. Um, you're graduating from a premier institution. Uh, you can have a huge impact on the world. Um, so when you think about doing something, you obviously you picked this business and this opportunity. Why, what was the sort of call to action for you, each of you individually, if you will, um, that says to you that you, know, you want to spend the next three to five years of your life on this endeavor? Um, do you think this, this is how you'll have um, the biggest impact on society? Go ahead. I think it will. The reason why I'm doing this is because it's not just when, you, when people invest in Speckle, it's not just an opportunity for us to make money, but we're making this happen for thousands and thousands of businesses to come. And we're making <clears throat> sure that the American dream is still alive in our time. And I think just to um, answer Joe, Ms. Miller's question from uh, the previous question, and to answer your question as well, Mr. Tsai, um, I think that 
you know, this is a prevalent problem in America. I know plenty of business owners that say, you know, it's impossible to get a loan unless you already have money. And the reason why we chose to do an equity-based platform as opposed to a debt-based platform, for example, is because when you're actually invested in a business, you feel like you are part of it. And what we want to do, essentially, is allow people in the community to, you know, say, I would really love to see, you know, a flower shop open up in my neighborhood, and I want to be a part of it. We want to allow them to choose what businesses are going to be opening up. So I think that's a big motivation for why we're doing equity. And like I said, I think it's a big problem now. And, you know, allowing the community to decide, you know, what businesses they want is a huge thing. So, so that, I'm sorry, that implies a great deal of locality. Yeah. And so when you choose to move beyond Santa Barbara, mm-hmm. how are you going to ensure that, you know, if, if I'm, you know, living in San Luis Obispo, how can I ensure that I'm only looking at San Luis Obispo businesses when I go to the site? Yeah, it would be, you know, really similar to, for example, Craigslist.com, or Craigslist.org, I'm sorry. And it would be, you know, we would be expanding on a national level, but, you know, very locally. So, you know, how in Craigslist you can choose, I'm from the San Francisco Bay Area, and you're only going to be looking at San Francisco Bay Area listings. That would be how we would be, too. Go ahead, Tom. Do you play, some of these debt platforms rate the companies, you know, sort of high risk, low risk, medium risk? Uh, Do you plan on doing the same thing for these companies that will come on the site? Um, based on the Jobs Act that just got passed, as an intermediary or broker dealer of crowdfunding websites, we're not allowed to rate any of the companies that are portrayed on our website or post profiles on our website. And, and when you think about expanding beyond your Santa Barbara home market initially, how scalable is it to really go out and roll this out regionally, locally around the around the country? I think it's very scalable. I mean, if you've if you know the website called Yelp.com, we're taking a really similar approach. They started in San Francisco, California. They kind of launched there, grew, and went to the next big urban city, similar to what we plan to do. We want to go to San Francisco, then work our way down up the West Coast, Portland, Seattle, and just attack those. And I think it's very scalable. Uh, do we have one more question? Panel? Are you? uh, One more? I'm going to ask just moderator's prerogative again. Do you, um, how do you, it's a two-edged sword. If you're going to vet your companies very carefully at the beginning, um, how do you deal with possible claims of discrimination or legal claims? You funded the bakery on Chapala Street, but not the bakery on De La Vina. Uh, why, and somebody sues you. Um, and the second question, but that's related to that, is that you might find that there's a real equity market niche for, like, sushi restaurants or Pizza Hut pizzerias where you can actually do an equity deal and make a lot of money. How do you, how adaptable is your um, model to, to real inflection points and where you might really grow. Regarding your first question, if one bakery in one local city is funded and another bakery in another local city is not funded, it's not up to us because it's the local investors who have the power to determine. Well, you said you were going to be careful about choosing your first 30 to get the project funded. And there, there you really do have to pick some winners. 
Yeah, we would go out to see who we think have the most potential, who has, who already has in um, executive summary, who already has pre um, prepared pitches to investors, and we're going to put those up first. Because at the end of the day, the profiles that are going to get funded are the ones that are most prepared, most thought out, and that's what we're aiming for. And regarding your second question is that on our website, one of the screenshots up there showed that, say, if it's a bakery, you can narrow down, okay, these are all the bakeries in California. These are all the bakeries that are being funded in my area. If it's a pizzeria, you can, based on categories, you can narrow it down however you like. I just want to address your first question one more time. I think, you know, in the beginning, it is a little discriminatory because we are essentially choosing the businesses we want. But I think it's like a necessary risk in the sense that if we allow anyone to come on in the beginning, it kind of allows for just, you know, the quality of our businesses to be a lot lower. And, you know, the investors aren't going to want to come back if, they're, if all we have up there just, you know, allowing anyone to post. So, well, One follow-up. You know, you used the Yelp example. And, you know, it's one thing when you go in and do a restaurant review and put it up on the site and the amount of due diligence that you do. Uh, very different than when you're doing due diligence on a new business that's borrowing money or, or letting investors invest in the business. Um, and if you're going to be doing 4,500 or 5,000, you know, deals a year, um, you know, once you get that growth curve going, the, I'm still wondering about the level of due diligence that you need to do on each of those businesses and how many people, the, the size of the army that you would have to have in-house to be able to do that adequately before you would put a business up on site. So can you just give me a little bit more insight in terms of how that would work? Regarding the due diligence is that a lot of legal documents, financial documents will be provided by the small business itself who wants to get funded. And when they post it up, we allow for, say, once the 500 investors are met, before they get the money, all the investors have to review the due diligence and electronically sign it, and then the money gets transferred. We ourselves aren't responsible, and we can't do any of the due diligence or any of the actions ourselves because we are an intermediary. And this is something that's been legally set by the JOBS Act. <clears throat> Regulations okay. still to come, right? Okay. Yeah. Uh, maybe the panel can stick around during the break and answer some informal questions from, from, uh, from these guys. But we're going to take uh, roughly a 15-minute break. Let's give a round of applause <laughs> to Speckle. Hi, uh, my name is James Rogers, and today I'm going to introduce you to Appeal Technology and tell you why uh, Appeal's good. Uh, Appeal Technology provides a proprietary solution created from natural plant extracts, which is applied to the surface of fresh produce in order to increase the shelf life of that produce without the need for refrigeration. Now, in the developing world, between 40 and 60% of fresh produce is lost to spoilage. In the United States, this number is closer to 20%. However, this reduction in post-harvest loss is only accomplished using expensive refrigeration and packaging techniques. Now, using our technology, we can eliminate these costly refrigeration and packaging techniques and thus accrue value to each member of the value chain in the fresh produce industry. We add value to growers who no longer need to harvest their crops early uh, so that they're able to ripen during transportation, which is a common practice now. Um, we accrue value to shippers who are able to offer higher value products to retailers 
uh, and also reduce the amount of shrinkage which occurs during transportation. And we also reduce their refrigeration costs, uh, which are a significant fraction of transportation. Uh, we also improve uh, the value to retailers. Retailers are, would be able to offer higher quality products to their consumers uh, and also reach new markets. Uh, and finally, we offer value to you, the consumer, uh, who no longer would need to c consider whether or not if they buy a pound and a half of strawberries versus a pound of strawberries, whether they're going to be able to eat all those before they have to throw them out. A little bit about the fresh produce market. The global market for fresh produce is $675 billion. The United States makes up $122 billion of this market. This, this boils down to about 313 pounds of fresh produce consumed per capita per year. Now, of, and, and this, this, this amount of produce which is consumed has grown at a rate which has actually outpaced population growth in the United States. So as consumers have become wealthier, they've substituted other goods, uh, they've substituted fresh produce for other goods which they used to consume. Now, within this 313 pounds, uh, per capita, 7.2 pounds of this is, fr is from strawberry consumption. Now, this 7.2 pounds in the, in the berry category, the berry category is actually the highest dollar sales category in fresh produce, uh, and at the same time, the fastest growing. It's up 60% in the last 12 years. This is the highest of, of any fresh produce. Geographically, 49% of this $122 billion industry is located in California, specifically along the 101 belt. Uh, and of this 49% of this, of this $122 billion industry, there are 1,300 shippers uh, within California itself, and that's who, that, that's who our customer is. So if you look at the distribution of the of a market here I'm trying to display, we have a lot of disconnected uh, producers and growers. Now they're aggregated by this large number, this 1,300 shippers, who then sell to retailers and then eventually sell to consumers. So our product is applied uh, in this highly addressable segment, and that is these 1,300 shippers within California. Uh, now, what's our product? Our product is called Edipeel. Uh, Edipeel is applied using a low-cost spray coating technique which coats fresh produce uh, with an ultra-thin barrier coating, thus preventing the two causes of spoilage of fresh produce, which are water loss and oxygen attack. Now, because we use products which are extracted from natural plant extracts, our product is considered USDA organic. How does this work? Uh, now, if you're, any, if you're a material scientist or if you've ever taken a material science class, then you, you've seen this, this triangle uh, many times, uh, this relationship between structure, processing, and properties. Now, in this specific case, what we're looking at are looking for are, specific, are molecules with specific properties uh, which will give us these, these, these two barrier properties, uh, resistance to oxygen and resistance to water. Uh, and so after we've, after we've identified these, these components, uh, which we've done, we then use high school chemistry to extract these components from natural plant extracts. We then formulate these molecules into a solution, which is amenable to spray coating. Uh, and then after spray coating, these molecules self-assemble into this specific structure which gives us the desired properties of our films, uh, and which prevent water loss and oxidation. Now, because our ingredients come directly from natural plant extracts, you're eating them already, and they're completely safe to consume. They're in a category cl classified by the USDA, or USDA uh, as 
generally recognized as safe. Now, what is our competitive advantage? I mentioned two alternative technologies, uh, one of which is refrigeration, has very high capital costs and simultaneously very high operating costs because of the, because of the demand for energy. Uh, now, we also have uh, packaging, which uh, has high capital costs, slightly lower operating costs. However, it is expensive to operate these facilities. Uh, and now in the bottom corner, we have our technology, which is extremely lowly capital intensive. It's, it's a spray coating technique, very low cost processing, uh, and very low operating costs because we source our product from, from basically uh, non-used plant streams. Uh, our, we also have an intellectual property in terms of uh, two things, our formulation, which, which we can protect uh, via IP, and our process, uh, which will remain, uh, it, to, to a large extent, a trade secret. However, there are certain aspects of this process which we can patent as well. Um, now, a si so a simple valuation of, of how, how we will price this product, only considering the amount of produce which is lost to shrink. Now shrink is the amount of weight that is lost during transportation. So, so water evaporates from the strawberries, uh, this re re results in weight loss. So although you might buy 100 pounds of strawberries from the grower, uh, by the time it gets to the retail store, you only have 90 pounds of strawberries left. left. This is a loss. So using USDA data, uh, we're able to calculate for each different type of produce the, the farm production at harvest per capita, uh, how much actually reaches retailers. Uh, so this gives us the amount of loss due to shrinkage. Uh, so you can see for the strawberry category, a large fraction is shrinkage, 8.33%. Now, we're also able to compare this to the average price of strawberries. So if we look at the average price of strawberries at 228 per pound, and we consider that we've lost 8.33% just during shipping due to this loss due to shrinkage, uh, we can see that by applying our product uh, to strawberries, we can increase per pound per capita 19 cents for each, for each pound of strawberries. Now, by pricing our product at a small fraction of this value added, so 15% of the value added to the shipper, uh, we can increase each shipper's sales margins by greater than 7%. Now, I'd like to point out that this data reflects only consumption within the United States, uh, does not consider any of, the United States only makes up one-fifth of the fresh produce industry. Uh, and, this, and this increase uh, also does not include the reduction in refrigeration costs, uh, which is an actu actually a much larger fraction of losses for shippers. Uh, so I'd like to tell you about the team who's going to do this. Uh, my name is James Rogers. I'm a PhD in the materials department at UCSB. Uh, I was recently awarded the Polymer Physics Prize uh, by the American Physical Society. Uh, my, my coworker uh, Zubin is a PhD in chemical engineering here, also a top engineering program. Uh, and he has previous experience at a startup company in India. His father also works in the food processing uh, industry uh, within India. who will both be graduates of the technology management program. Uh, we have an excellent team of advisors. Uh, Minos is a partner at the Fresh Link Group. Uh, he has 20 plus years of industry experience. He actually introduced uh, bagged lettuces uh, to, to Costco. Uh, and uh, uh, Michael Kimes is the, uh, is the chief technical officer of uh, CNFA. He has 25 plus years uh, in the development of, uh, in, in, in basically managing 
uh, introduction of new technologies in the developing world. And Dr. Roberta, Roberta Cook, who's an agricultural and resource economics professor at UC Davis, uh, to help us with corporate strategy. I'd like to end here with our milestones. So you can see that our original formulation is strawberries, uh, which, we, which is a highly concentrated market. Four, four grower shippers control 50% of this shipping. Uh, so this is, so uh, this is what we see in year two. Uh, you can see we have large sales and our net income is increasing. Uh, and so we'll see throughout the years, we introduced two new products in year two, or developed two new products in year two, which are released in year three. We developed three new products in year three, which are released in year four, and et cetera. And there are a large number of types of produce, 300 different kinds of produce, uh, which by tailoring specific chemistry, we can address. Uh, with this, uh, we're seeking $1.3 million in seed capital to pay for our first year of operations. Um, uh, and with that, uh, thank you. Yeah, I just want to understand a little bit about the source of your uh, of the chemicals. You know, as they come out, it's, you said there was plant extract, but could you just elaborate a little bit more about the sources? Sure, absolutely. So the nice thing about this technology is that we're not supply side limited. Um, we can draw our this, these chemicals from any form of natural, uh, any form of any form of organic plant matter. Um, so, for example, if there's a large harvest in, in apples and uh, the prices go down, we can source uh, from apples. Uh, or we can even draw from, uh, for example, the leafy green portion of fresh produce, which is not consumed by the consumer. Uh, so we're, uh, I don't like to say it, but we're, we're drawing from waste streams from uh, fresh produce. And are you assuming that you will do that on site, or where will, where will all this happen? So th this will occur in uh, processing facilities. So uh, in, our, in our financial uh, in our financial projections, uh, we, we show that we'll do, we'll do this on site with a number of process engineers. Yes. Uh, go ahead, John. So, <clears throat> processing facilities are these owned by the growers? Um, so the 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 they will. So we, we, we will own the equipment. Uh, we will we in, in our financial projections we include the process engineers who will maintain that equipment uh, within the individual. Um, Processing are the processing facilities owned by the growers? The facilities are owned by the growers. Okay. Uh, the shippers, excuse me, the, gr the, the grower shippers. The shippers are responsible for basically aggregating the, the, the large number of farms that they source from, uh, and then they have large centralized processing facilities. And so our process engineers will be responsible for uh, basically quality control within those individual facilities. And, uh, and so the number of process engineers we have scales with uh, the the client base. Do you have serving. a sense on the return of, on investment for <clears throat> a processing facility investing in your process and thereby uh, benefiting from the reduced spoilage down the distribution chain? Um, so our estimates on what on the price that we will charge them uh, is o are only based on reduced um, uh, volume sales based on mass loss. Uh, we have estimates of what they will be saving in terms of their reduced shipping costs in terms of, of, of refrigeration, but those are not included in any of the financial projections uh, that we've given you. Okay, thank you. And these are really, really conservative estimates or no? I've never heard anyone say that about their numbers before. <laughs> uh, go ahead, Tom. So they don't own the processing equipment. You own it, we but it's on their site, and then you guys maintain it. Exactly. I understand. 
Okay, so who, who's the most critical player in the chain? Is it the grower? Is it the shipper? Who do you have to convince to use the product? The, the sh the sh so the, the shipper is the largest player in the chain. Um, the retailer will decide whether or not to, to buy from uh, a, a particular producer. Um, and so uh, the, the, the question is whether the uh, grocery stores will be willing to buy uh, this particular product. Um, but, but based on uh, current adoption rates of new technology for post-harvest, uh, as long as there's no perceived difference by the consumer, uh, adoption rates by retailers are not a problem. And, and what is the risk there in terms of getting the USDA to bless this as or organic? So, so actually, uh, according to the USDA, since we source our product from, uh, from chemicals which are in all of the produce that we, we naturally consume, uh, our molecules are in a category known as generally recognized as safe. Uh, which means that they don't require USDA approval. However, what we can do is make these molecules synthetically so we can make them for cheaper. So what we'll do is, although in the initial batches we'll be sourcing from, wasted, uh, from, plant, from plant matter, uh, simultaneously we'll be pushing through this chemical through the USDA approval process so long term we can reduce our production costs. And so right out of the gate, you'll be right able to label these organic. Right out of the gate, we'll be able to sell without USDA approval. And, and label them as organic. 100% US, USDA organic, correct. And, and then the last question is, you know, given that we are in the heart of strawberry growers um, and shippers, have you test, tested this concept with them? And, and if so, what's the feedback been? Yeah, it's, it's been actually uh, very interesting. Uh, so I had a, I had a, a conference call, uh, a, a couple conference calls with the VP of sales of Del Monte Fresh Division, uh, Western Division of Del Monte Fresh, and also I've been speaking with uh, sales representatives from Driscoll's, who are the largest uh, strawberry manufacturers. Their first thing was say, uh, their f actually it was interesting to me. They said, "Wow, strawberry is great." Uh, first first comment from uh, VP of Sales from Del Monte Fresh was, "Can you get this to work on Chilean grapes?" So a market I'd never even thought of. They said they have to fly them in because they spoil so quickly. Uh, so they're not only interested in strawberries; they're interested in in the whole gamut of products. Uh Cable. Just a sort of a two-part question on the chemistry of the, of the process here. So you talk about essentially putting a membrane on each yes, fruit, right? exactly. So what if the fruit is already wet to begin with? Does that capture the moisture underneath the membrane and then it becomes a problem in the sense that it cannot escape? Uh, um, and then sort of the second question is how much of this is um, already commercialized? Sort of, you know, it's an engineering challenge versus a science challenge. So how much of it is sort of outside the laboratory and into a production a process, and so, then the um, sort of sort of the point, third part of this, part uh, because I think it's related. You can answer it collectively, which is how much of a difference. Um, what do you have to do incrementally for each new type of fruit? So you talked about strawberry, chili, and grapes. What is the so, chemistry so or process question changes? Number one and three simultaneously. Yeah. Uh, so both of those questions kind of ask the question of how important is the surface chemistry of the produce on producing the coating. Uh, the surface chemistry is very important. Uh, it, it determines actually how the individual molecules uh, are, interact with the surface and how they arrange. And, that's, and that structure is what gives us our properties which are, enable us to extend shelf life. So that chemistry is very important. And that's why we've staged our development of these products from berry category to leafy greens to vegetables hmm. because the surface chemistries are, are, are much more similar. So it does take additional R&D development, but if you look at our financial projections, we have a one-year lead time on all, of our, on all of the products that we're producing. So our sales numbers, uh, so we have excellent sales in year two, uh, but we have a, a large number of costs because we're releasing three new products in year three. Uh, so so that, is, that is a significant need for R&D. Uh, however, I've, 
we've, we've spent our last five years in our PhDs understanding this problem, uh, so we believe that the, the turnaround time for new products will be low. Um, if you could remind me of the second question. Yeah, the second question was around um, how, how much, much of it is science how versus much is engineering. Yeah. Uh, this is mostly an engineering problem at this point. So the current state of the art is mainly polymeric films, and that's where our whole competitive advantage is, that we are operating with completely natural films. So that's, far, that's a big selling point. How far along are you on the patent process? Uh, so we, we, have, we have not filed a patent. Uh, working on, so basically, uh, we understand the prior art. Uh, and we, we figure out where, uh, where we can stake our claims uh, and at, with, with what range of formulations uh, we, we can apply. Uh, so. Uh, we haven't we haven't filed anything, uh, but by by December uh, we plan to have a provisionary patent uh, filed, and then we'll, we'll begin able to begin production. Okay, thanks. Go ahead. One more question. Yeah. What, what do you think the biggest risk in the in the business plan is? Um, so the biggest risk I, I believe is reaching uh, the grower the grower shippers uh, right now. Um, however, what we have written into our business plan and why why we're asking for. Uh, a relatively large amount of money is to hire hire uh, basically a, a heavy hitter um, market sales and marketing guy uh, year one so that we can hit the ground running uh, once 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 we've been able to scale up the process uh, so so getting that key uh, marketing sales and marketing person to re to be able to to develop those relationships with our large customers because we're not talking about getting one customer who makes up one percent of the shipping market we're looking for one customer who makes up twenty five percent of the bearing market so that's that business plan wise I, I think that's our our biggest question mark right now. So one more question. Competitors exits. Uh, so there there are two major types of competitive products in this segment. Uh, the first are uh, a company called Nature Seal, and what they do, have you ever seen the, the fresh, pro, uh, fresh cut apples at McDonald's or Subway? Uh, they're, they're, that's their product. Uh, what they are, though, is an anti-browning agent. So they're treating the symptoms of produce spoilage, not the actual cause. Um, so they are a competitor, although uh, they, they, they use it, uh, they're, they're going after it a different way. Uh, so they're not reducing shrink, et cetera. Uh, so we have, I believe we have a significant competitive advantage there. Uh, and uh, the, other, the other competitors are um, uh, basically anti-ripening agents, so 1-methylcyclopropene uh, is generally used, it's actually produced by Dow, who's one of the sponsors, uh, to, to make, make uh, tomatoes so they actually don't, so you can harvest them when they're green, uh, hit them with 1-methylcyclopropene, ship them to where you want them, and then ripen them in a tank outside of the grocery store. Uh, so that's a competing technology, although you only get one-fifth of the nutrients in your product if you don't do the vine ripening. Uh, so I believe we also have a conf competitive advantage there. Uh, exits, uh, I, I believe in, uh, we could be acquired uh, by a, a, one of the larger shippers. However, uh, based on the diversity of products that, we're, that we plan to be selling, I think an initial public offering is, is more in line. Okay, thanks. One, one last question would be um, applicability globally outside the U.S. Absolutely. Uh, that's something that we didn't address at all in the presentation today. However, since we're, we're source, we're not, like I said, we're not supply side limited, we can source our wasted produce streams in, the thir in third world countries. Uh, so one of the things that I would really like to develop in, within this company is outreach to these developing nations uh, and, and basically teach them how to, how to do this process. 
uh, because it's such a, such a low manufacturing cost and such simple chemistry. Uh, with, with training uh, and, and outreach, I, I believe that we'll be able to, to, to not only generate profits within the developed world uh, due to expanding demand for certain high-cost products, uh, but also maintain low-cost crops uh, and, and be able to, to reduce that 40 to 60% of spoilage in the developing world. Uh, I, think we'll, I, I think it'll be a game-changer. And it's huge, huge energy saving as well, so that's one other side. Saving the world one strawberry at a time. <laughs> well, that's, that's where we're starting. That's your, that really that's your marketing campaign. <laughs> okay. Uh, thank you very much. Let's hear it for appeal. Hello, everyone. I'm Nabrat Chahan. Today I'm going to be talking to you about AppScale. The very first, should I be standing here? So we could, the very first open source Google platform as a service. So let's say you have a website. And you have a few users going to that website. Now, what happens when you get very popular? You go viral. You have a lot of users going to your website. What happens on that one machine that you're running your website? Bad things happen. Your users can't get to your website. You're unhappy. Your reputation is hurt. So what can you do instead? You can use Google App Engine. Google App Engine will let you actually run your website on Google's infrastructure, and as you get more and more users, they will actually scale out your resources. You don't have to worry about the software, you don't have to worry about the hardware. This is great. But what happens when you get upset with Google? Maybe their service isn't too great. You try to call them on the phone, they're not picking up. The pricing is ridiculous, you know, you just can't afford it anymore. What can you do? This is where AppScale comes in. AppScale lets you run those same websites on your own machines. So what is AppScale? We let you run Google App Engine applications on your own hardware. You can do this with multiple applications. You can do this with scale, where actually, as you're using more resources, we'll let you add more and more machines. We run this with Python, Java, and Go applications. And we're infrastructure agnostic, meaning if you have a set of machines, you can run AppScale on top of it. So there's 500,000 applications right now that run on Google App Engine. They also run on AppScale. So since 2009, we've had seven releases, over 10,000 downloads, thousands of starts across the world. We've run places such as IBM and NASA. And we've been funded by Google, IBM, the NSF, and the NIH by the tune of $2.1 million in R&D grant funding. So let's look at cloud markets here. The very top, we're looking at public cloud offerings. This is where you can go and pretty much outsource your IT department. You can buy uh, technology in terms of virtual machines or services, such as SaaS offerings. So here we're looking at a $241 billion market. And the other, other spectrum of this is private cloud. So think of a data center, you're a Fortune 1000 company, and you're actually trying to get the same elasticity, the same capabilities that public cloud is offering, but you want to bring it in-house, inside your data center. And this is where we come in. We will manage your infrastructure for you. So essentially our target customer is Fortune 1000 companies that have virtualized data centers. So what is our, our value offering here? So first and foremost, we're going to lower your system administration costs. No longer, if you're a developer at this Fortune 1000 company, 
Do you have to go to a system admin and say, look, I need you to set up a data store for me or a, a database. I need you to set up a machine for me so I can run my web service. Now you can just go to your manager. Your manager will say, there's an AppScale deployment right there. Go and run it over there. So what does that mean if you're a developer? Faster time to value. You can crank out your websites much quicker. You're actually able to generate revenue much quicker. Since AppScale can scale your, your resources up and down based on usage, we're actually going to save you infrastructure cost and also save you on power savings. We eliminate lock-in. So right now, if you're writing, if you have your website for Google App Engine, you can actually use AppScale to move away if you want to. And this is actually one of the reasons Google was the initial funder. They're very cognizant of the fact that it's a barrier to entry when they actually looked at customers and the customers saying, well, no, I don't want to be locked in. Now they can just say, no, there's AppScale. If you want to leave, AppScale is an option for you. We also have other capabilities, hybrid cloud. This is where we actually connect multiple clouds together. So if you have an application running on Google App Engine, you can sync your data locally on an AppScale deployment, and you can do things such as analytics on your data, find out what your customers are doing, find out what your business is doing. Second, disaster recovery. For whatever reason, if Google goes down, no one, ever, no one has 100% uptime, including Google. You have AppScale as a local deployment that you can actually do business continuity. Third, we're working with Google right now and figuring out how we can do cloud bursting. How can you take those applications that are running in your data center and burst out to get more resources as you need them? So the business model here is twofolds. First and foremost is what we've been doing, an open source edition that we give out to the public for free to use. So this actually helps us to shorten our sales cycles because the people that are working at these, these Fortune 1000 companies, their developers are using AppScale, and when the CIOs, the CTOs, the C-level executives come and talk to the developers, we're going to have proponents inside the company. Next. It's what we're selling, the enterprise edition. So let's say you're a, a data center, you're running proprietary software inside. Let's say VMware or an Oracle database. This is where we'll give you the stubs to run AppScale with those proprietary implementations. And we'll charge you based on just a standard IT licensing, also training, professional services, and support. Lastly, the App Store. So there's 500,000 applications right now that run on Google App Engine. A subset of those makes sense to run, run in a private setting. So essentially, we're going to do the app store for the enterprise. One-click shopping, you can buy an app, you can have, you know, streamline your business processes. So right now, AppScale is already incorporated. We're a C-Corp. We have legal representat representation with Straddling, a local law firm here. They actually represent a lot of the, the tech guys around here. We have our first customer lined up. So this customer, they love App Engine, and they want to expand their market. They're doing really great here in the U.S., and they want to go elsewhere. They want to go into China. The problem with China is China blocks all the traffic goes out to Google, Facebook, Twitter, you name it, it's probably blocked. This is a great firewall of China. For them to go into China, they have one option, and that's us, AppScale. So we actually own this market. We own this niche. We're partners with Eucalyptus. Eucalyptus is a company, essentially they are to Amazon EC2 as we are to Google App Engine. They were able to take the technology from the lab here and turn it into a very successful company. Their executives and their founders have been very helpful for us strategizing how we want to take AppScale and commercialize it. We have a great relationship with Google. So Google was the first company to actually fund us, and they also give us reference customers to talk to, potential new customers to bring on board, great amount of press, and the funding has been nice also. So we've been approached by Apache and Ubuntu to come join their distributions. Uh, we've yet to decide if we want to go with them or not. Uh, if we do join them, essentially what we're going to get is great press, marketing, and whatnot, 
but we're looking, holding off till Series A to actually figure out what's best for the company. So the, the team here, we have myself and Chris Bunch. Uh, we're PhD candidates, experts in cloud computing. The initial team that we're bringing on, over 10 PhDs. These are experts in cloud computing, distributed computing, and uh, parallel computing. So our, our technical team is rock solid. And then we have great mentors and advisors, such as the CTO and, and, uh, CTO and Woody Rollins, who actually were co-founders of Eucalyptus. Also, Edward Shaughnessy has been helping us out from Intel Capital, giving his perspective from uh, the VC side. So looking at the five-year roadmap, we see that the first year what we want to do is go out there, shake off the perception of being the, the essentially we're, we're seen as a research project, and we want to shake that off and become production-ready software. Year two, we're looking at doing an enterprise edition, essentially what I was telling you before, the Oracles, uh, the, the VMwares, all those stuff that we can actually go and sell and sell uh, to Fortune 1000 companies. And then the App Store idea as well. From year three, we anticipate a break even. Four and five, we'll see that the sales cycle start to close and the App Store will start generating massive revenue. So exit strategy and funding. So right now we're seeking a Series A funding. We're not disclosing publicly how much we're looking for or what our valuation is. Uh, in terms of exit strategy, we could be bought by a multitude of different companies. Uh, any of these guys that want to make a play in the IT field that we're in right now, uh, they can look to us, acquire us, not just for the technology, but for the great engineering talent that we have as well. And if we see that the market is much bigger than we were anticipating, we're going to aim for an IPO. So over the years, I mean, we've been doing this since uh, 2008 when we initially started. We've had tremendous press, and we have partners. And we're talking with people such as HP, Netflix, so on and so forth, that are really interested in, in this technology. We have people in governments around the world are running this technology. And I want to thank you guys for listening to me. Thanks. So um, clearly, you guys have a very talented technology team and you know, experienced advisors. So uh, I'm not going to ask you about the technology piece. I'm going to ask you about the market segmentation, if you will. Uh, and it seems like there are really sort of two bets here. One is that um, enterprises will adopt uh, Google App Engine over Amazon AWS or Rackspace, right? So there is a, you've made your bet on Google um, succeeding, which actually it has not until now. In terms of market leadership, Amazon is clearly number one. Um, so help me understand why you think that Google App Engine will become the cloud platform of choice uh, for companies at large. I think that's question one. And then question two, you're bringing the cloud inside the enterprise. You're bringing it on-prem. Um, and within sort of the, the on-prem market, VMware has had a pretty large footprint in terms of virtualizing the enterprise, right? Mm -hmm. And the idea of scaling on-demand um, through virtual servers, I mean, it's really essentially their lock. So how, help, me, help me walk through the thinking you have in terms of how you will penetrate the market and what happens if, you know, let's say Google App Engine never becomes a market leader, but Amazon is, you know, there for, for, for a long time. So being infrastructure agnostic that we talked about earlier, we can really run wherever we need to. So we already can run on Eucalyptus, we can run on Amazon EC2 already and pull in different types of infrastructure as we need to. We can run on OpenStack, uh, working on CloudStack right now as well. And it's to emphasize that it's really any kind of infrastructure we can just take and run over it with no problem. So if somebody goes and dies away one day, we can automatically leap onto somebody else. 
Um, along the Google App Engine lines, we are only initially betting on Google App Engine as the big leader in the field. And since we already have API compatibility with them, they're kind of an easy starting margin. But we're also looking out to branch out into like the Ruby on Rails segments, the Sinatra segments that are being taken up by like Heroku, who was acquired by Salesforce. Right, in terms of their, so before we thought, you know, are we, do we want to make this a commercial venture? We, so we talk with the Google guys really often. So they're always telling us what their next roadmap is and whatnot. So our relationship is great with them. So they told us essentially last year they were at about uh, 200,000 applications. This year they're at about 500,000 applications. Their growth is tremendous. Last year they had 1.5 billion page hits a day. Now they're at 7 billion page hits a day. So their growth is just going skyrocketing. So the uptake is actually there. Uh, and this is where, where we want to part with them and actually market for them. So I, I think that maybe they really need someone to, a third party to go and market for them, and we can be that party. And this is actually, you know, a great symbiotic relationship we can have with Google. What have you found in, when you talk to your, you know, the first customer you signed up, as you talk to more customers, are you finding them asking you this question of, you know, hey, we're already on AWS, you know, why should we pick Google App Engine? Or do you think that they've already made their choice of Google App Engine over Amazon, and then you were sort of the team that brings that uh, within the enterprise so that they don't have to rely on the public cloud. Right, so, so the initial customers, they're already on Google App Engine. Yeah. So I mean, we already have a lot of inbound requests for contracts and whatnot. Uh, and these customers, either they want to go into China or Europe or something, or they want to do something, they have like a, so we have this, some, uh, a guy in Belgium, he has a startup, an app that everybody likes. BT comes along and says, we like your app, but we're not going to run it on Google App Engine. Mm -hmm. And so this is where we come in. The only way for them to run that app in their data center is us. So we have a lot of ways that we're actually getting market pull. So I'm hearing a lot of Google app. Google really likes us, but we're betting on having advantage of, advantages over Google App Engine as an alternative what I heard early on was they're expensive and hard to get on the phone, and then later I heard they don't operate in China. So what other benefits are there besides those three? So essentially, we're not going heads up against Google. So we're, going to, we're taking up the white space that they're not covering. So they cannot go into data centers, right, because they're not going to ship code. They're never going to ship their entire, you know. So you're the private side of Google. We're the private engine. cloud and of their public. Right, we're not looking to go heads up against them. Okay, well, that uh, just—it's uh, hard to parse that out of your uh, presentation, so I just wanted to clarify it. Right, we're, we're just giving you another option. If you want to leave, you can with AppScale. Go ahead, Tom. Is Google going to be one of your investors in Route A? Oh, uh, we've been thinking about that, and we may not go that route. Maybe a, a later follow-up round, or a B or C, if we do go that route. But in the initial A, we want to have independence from them. Yeah, talk to me a little bit about the, you know, I don't think you really uh, answered Kaval's question about VMware in mm -hmm. the uh, private sector, so will you do that? And then also talk a little bit about other competitors or competitive alter alternatives to yours. Great, yeah. So, so number one competitor would be VMware's Cloud Foundry. It's open source also. And so the way we distinguish ourselves is we have apps. We have over half a million apps right now. Cloud Foundry, I couldn't tell you how many apps they have. We've been out here since, since 2009. They've just recently released their stuff. So we have, we're, we're our first mover in, in this regard, and also we're the big data pass. So since Google has a certain programming model that they enforce on programmers, this makes it so we can scale the front end, the middle, and the back. Whereas Cloud Foundry, they kind of let the developer do whatever they want. And so they're gonna hit you know, pain points when they try to scale out to the point where, where we can see, keep going. 
and biggest risk going forward in your business plan? So I would say the, the, the team that we have in terms of our technology is tremendous. I think what we really need is like a great VP of sales, guy who knows the CIOs, the guy who knows the CTOs, and get us in there when we have our enterprise edition ready. So, moderator question. Uh, this sounds like an ancient business strategy called walk next to a heavy wagon, something may fall off. Uh, what happens if Google settles with China and you don't have a market there? So and what are the other risk factors? Because I, think, I don't think you really got to, got to all the risks involved. Okay, so if China and Google become, you know, good buddies again, that is not actually, we're, that, we're, we're betting our bet on private cloud. We're going to be the private cloud solution. And so initially, we'll go and make our, our initial play to get validation with these Chinese customers. Or they're U.S. customers that want to go into China. But at the end of the day, we're going after Fortune 1000 companies. Moderators? Or panelists? Well, I'm Another still, question? I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm still struggling with the answer to the biggest risk, being the VP of sales. Uh, so help me think through that. If that's, that's the only risk that you can see, is hiring a good VP of sales. Sure. So that's definitely not the only risk. There are, wait, wait, that's the biggest that, risk. I, I, we consider that to be one of the bigger risks. Uh, some other things we've looked at from the financial numbers are that getting a Cause team. Because if that's the biggest risk, I'll sign up. <laughs> Raj, I would say that's the biggest risk. What do you think? That is the biggest risk. I guess just one other we, thing. We have so much inbound requests for contracts, and since we're still PhD students right now, we've had to push them away. So from the get-go, we're going to have inbound contracts from the, get from the, from the very beginning. So the, the revenue is going to be coming in from the, from the very beginning. It's once we've actually established ourselves as you know, a, a leader in this area, we shake off the, the fact that we're a research project. We're now production ready. I think we were, it's going to be that nice hockey stick curve that you saw. Uh, go ahead, John. So I get the impression you guys have been working on this for several years. Yeah. Why are you only now bringing it to market and trying to commercialize it and making it more than a science project? We want to make sure that we get our doctorates first. We want to make sure you get your doctorates first. Okay. Good, good strategy. Hope the faculty is listening. Uh, <laughs> I think just following up on Tom's question, I think a bunch of us have said, I think, the same thing in different ways. But I think the one thing to think about as you go forward is you have the advantage and the disadvantage of having a very strong um, company as your partner. But I think you have what's proverbially called a platform risk, which is the same risk that Zynga has with Facebook or Intel had in the early days with Microsoft or actually Microsoft had with IBM, which is that you partner with somebody who is going to be your market maker but they could also be your market taker. And I think you want to. So in taking in terms of the private sector? I just think that I think, I think you have two risks here. One is that, as you pointed out, you know, the Google App Engine platform is only as good as the apps that run on it. So you know, in Belgium, for example, if this guy has a killer app and all the enterprises want that app, but they want to run it on, the, on premises, right. then I agree they would adopt Google App Engine. But it, it's very likely that Google App Engine may not become the, the dominant cloud platform. It might be Amazon. Um, and then, so I think that's sort of risk number one. Um, and I think Chris's answer is, well, you can move away from Google, which is, which is fine. But I think that usually takes a while. Switching costs are high. 
And the second item is you're trying to bring the cloud inside the enterprise, which I think is a brilliant idea. I think a lot of companies who don't want to be on the cloud, they want to have cloud applications but running on their own servers. But I think there you have VMware. And I think the question for you is if you, if you bet on the Google App Engine um, platform, does that actually only delay your uh, competitive differentiation against VMware? Because VMware is not standing still. They're going out and expanding their on-premise solution as well. So I just think it's a good, really good thing to have, to have Google behind you or sort of win behind your sales early on. But as you grow the business, uh, you may want to think about how that impacts your quote-unquote platform risk. And again, I mean, there are companies like Zynga that have gone out in public and they have a huge risk on Facebook, right? I mean, if Facebook turns their algorithm, Zynga would have a problem. Google had, a lot of the e-commerce companies have a similar risk on Google. Google changes the search algorithm and you know, your e-commerce traffic could go up and down significantly. So I just think it's something you want to acknowledge and deal with it. Just final, final comment, because I can't resist it. Your biggest challenge may not be the marketing officer, because I think you guys are great spokespeople for your product. It may be a tough-as-nails finance guy who's going to take that non-Google equity, keep enough cash there that you've got muscle so you can push Google away and make yourself look really valuable to Amazon and also convince those Fortune 1000 companies that you got staying power. That's it. Thank you. Hi. So we all know that smartphones are awesome. They control everything from email, text, you name it. What you may not know is that smartphones already control over 50% of the cell phone market, and within five years, feature phones will be nearly obsolete. Now, some of the things that people love about smartphones, not only the ease of use, but the customi customizability that comes with the App Store. Now, at Bright Blue, we plan on revolutionizing home automation using your smartphone and bringing that same ease of use and customization to controlling every facet of your home environment. And we plan on doing that with the Auto. Named after the first son of King Bluetooth, Auto was once known for connecting Norway, Denmark, and England under one control before he died. In the same way today, Auto will be remembered for connecting all of your lights and appliances under one device, your smartphone. Now, the Auto is a plug-and-play device that runs over Bluetooth 4.0 technology and allows users to instantly connect with their cell phones um, to control all of their lights and appliances that are plugged into it. It's completely customizable. It also requires no installation and is the most affordable product on the market in the home automation industry today. Each plug will also be built with our custom proximity settings. Now, all auto plugs will be run using our Blue Mesh technology, which allows users where even if they're out of range of one plug in their house, they'll still be able to connect and control any appliances that they're, when they're in range of their Blue Mesh network. And finally, we plan on bringing the world's first open source app store for your home called the Auto Market. Now, setting up an auto is as simple as taking it out of a package, plugging it into a wall, plugging any lighter appliance into the other side. Now, it only, from this point, it only takes 25 seconds for a user to connect with their phone and instantly get control over features like dimming, proximity, and power, mount, power measurement. On top of that, Developers will be able to not only use the hardware features that we provide, but they'll be able to exploit functionalities on the cell phone, such as 
the GPS or accelerometer to create apps of any use case. Uh, sorry, I'm having a little trouble reading my notes. Uh, ben, you think you could help me out with that? Yeah, I got two ones the other Jeez, dude. <laughs> Turned out a little bit. Sorry, a little bright. Up a little bit more. All right, thank you. Ben Chang, our VP of Engineering. So some of these apps could include anything from a notification system if you want to set up in your house where every time you get an incoming call or text, a, a light, light flashes in the house. Or you could even have developers create fully interactive games using the lights and appliances in your house. So now I'd like to introduce you to the rest of the Bright Blue Dream Team. Complete with three engineers, we not only have the technical background, but we have the marketing sales uh, and business skills to get this company off and rolling after graduation this spring. Now, along with the money that we'll be looking for from investors, we'll be looking for somebody who can add value to our team in both the business direction and product development of our company. Let's take a look at the home automation industry today. You have products such as Belkin, Z-Wave, and X10, which are on the lowest of costs on home automation systems today. However, the customizable features are at a minimum. In order to get features like profiles and custom settings on your devices, you're going to have to shed out thousands more dollars for systems like Creston, Insteon, and Control 4. What we're trying to do with the auto is not only bring you the most affordable home automation system on the market today, but allow you to customize your home environment in a way that's never been possible before. And that's thanks to the auto market. On top of all these convenience factors I've talked about today, one of the biggest is that the auto will be the cheapest and easiest way to set up a green home today. Using our subscription features, users will not only be able to get hourly breakdowns of their power measurement of each auto plug they're using, but they'll be able to use our self-learning algorithm to monitor their daily habits and routines and save you money without you having to do anything at all. How cool is that? On top of that, autos will all be programmed directly out of the box to set up custom proximity settings. For instance, if I'm standing here and I set a proximity distance to that lamp, as soon as I walk out of that proximity distance, the light turns off. Now, as I walk back into it, the light turns back on. It's as easy as that. What it allows users to do is never have to worry about leaving a lighter appliance on when they leave the house again. Not only that, all auto plugs will disconnect power completely from your appliances so that you can be rest assured that no appliances are draining any phantom power on their standby modes. Like you all to meet Jenny. Jenny is 25 and she works at a young startup in San Francisco. She's always busy. She finds herself having to multitask just to get through the day. Now, because of this, Jenny relies on her smartphone to control almost every facet of her life. Her work, her calendar, social life, and now her one-bedroom apartment on Market Street. For less than $200, Jenny was able to completely automate her home all by herself. 6 a.m. comes around Monday morning. Like most of us, Jenny has a difficult time getting up for work. Not to worry. Jenny set her alarm clock app to dim on a lamp in the morning with her alarm to help her get up. Not only that, she preset her water heater, coffee maker, and bathroom heater to all turn on before her alarm even went off, so that by the time she got out of bed, those were all ready to go. 8 a.m. comes around. 
Now, despite how planned Jenny's morning was, she still ends up rushing out the door at 8 to avoid being late for work. In her rush to find her keys and get to her car, she happened to leave on her lights, her toaster oven, and her curling iron. Well, like most of us, we would get about halfway to work, realize this, be forced to go back. But not Jenny. She preset her auto away mode on her, on her system to turn off all of her lights and appliances the second she walked out of the proximity of her home. Let's so fast forward, 6 p.m. Jenny comes home, groceries in one hand, briefcase in the other. She opens the door. Her lights turn on without her having to drop a single bag. Not only that, she's able to program her music player to turn on the second she opens her door. So 11 p.m. comes around, she gets into bed, and right as she's about to fall asleep, she realizes, oh no, she left her TV and her DVD player on the other room. Not to worry, Jenny just rolls over, hits sleep mode on her phone, and all of her appliances are disconnected from power for the rest of the night. Now, it took Jenny about a week for her self-learning algorithm to start learning her daily habits and start taking over some of these features without her having to program anything. So, we're offering you all these features that I mentioned to you today for the low cost of $25 per auto plug. With COGS of $13, we plan to make a 48% profit margin on all of our hardware. However, hardware is not the central focus of our business model. We will be focused on our value-added software and subscriptions. For this reason, in the first two years, we'll be aggressively searching for an OEM to not only build our products, but also to help us expand our product line to power strips, replaceable light switches, and replaceable outlets. Now, even though our profit margins will decrease significantly with an OEM, we'll be able to take advantage of their pre-established distribution and retail channels to allow us to reach a much broader market at a much faster rate. So looking at the software side, we'll be selling our bright blue app on the Google and Apple Marketplace for $1. Of that $1, we'll retain 70%. Google and Apple retain the remaining 30. Now, with each auto plug, we'll be giving away one free app download, so the user who buys an auto plug will not have to purchase this app. Looking at all the apps downloaded off the auto market, we will retain 30% of all app revenue that is purchased on the auto market, and developers will maintain the industry standard 70%. So looking at our finances now, we kept our numbers very conservative, but as you can see in this breakdown, what we expect is that as the years go on, hardware will become a lesser and lesser focal point of our business. And, our, and we see that in year three, when we expect to get into a retail outlet, that this is when we'll see a big increase in the number of apps purchased and subscriptions bought. Uh, so today we'll be asking for $1 million to get us through year two. Um, and that's when we expect to get an OEM to make our hardware for us and hopefully get into a retail outlet. So today, we are starting a whole new era of home automation. And now, customizing your home is as simple as turning your house bright blue. Thank you. In your example of Jenny, she spent $200 and uh, it's 25 bucks per outlet, as I understand it. So that's eight, again, if I'm doing my math right. Uh, yeah, so no, wait, let me finish. That's not the question. So she has somehow, <laughs> somehow figured out that by spending 200 bucks, she's going to save on her utility bill. How much does Jenny spend in a normal year on electricity, and how much will she save by installing these eight plugs off her utility bill? Uh, so 
so we'll be, to face your first question, so we'll be offering a package where if you buy five plugs, you actually get, or buy four plugs, you'll get a fifth free. Um, now, uh, what the research that we've done is on average, people waste around $160 a year based off of leaving appliances on, leaving TVs plugged in, draining power. And so right off the bat, auto plugs can take care of all phantom charging and the risk of leaving your lights on. So depending on how good people are on, Jenny's not a real person, so we don't know exactly how really? well Just like she Julia. is, how good she is at normally turning off her lights and appliances. But uh, on average, we look to save a significant amount for each user. So hearing your example, she'd save 160 bucks, your, your prototypical Hun- customer. 100 so, to 150 is... So a year and a half-ish payback on her $200 investment, and then after that, it's gravy. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Okay. Joanne? What's the state of development right now? So... I'll take it. Yeah. Um, Right now, we, we saw the prototype. Uh, we have our initial, I call it the alpha product. Um, we have the hardware built on Bluetooth 2.1 right now. We're working on getting to Bluetooth 4.0, low energy, so it doesn't um, take up or it doesn't consume more energy uh, than saves it saves you. Um, also, we're developing our current app on Android 2.1. Um, we're looking to develop it on iPhone, but there's certain... Um, the MFI program, to get into the MFI program, they, Apple has certain authentication with their hardware and stuff, so we're still uh, looking into that. But um, the current product, uh, we can do dimming on-off uh, proximity, and our next iteration will have AC power measurement, and we're also looking on developing our software, um, and we'll be releasing our new Android app um, soon. Um, so when do you expect to get first customers? So we've been or getting a lot of customers or whatever. You know. Taylor, you want to take that one? Yeah, so we're looking towards uh, the end of this summer to start our beta testing program where we'll give out, uh, we decided that around 200 plugs to family, friends, and start getting feedback um, off of that, and then hopefully launch by the end of the year a full market. Tom? How do you plan on dealing with those that might need help with professional installation? Jenny might not need it, and a lot of you know, the younger generation, but I'm thinking about my mom or dad. There's just no way they'd uh, be able to install this on their own. So, so we'll be offering on our, on our website um, lots of blogs and forums, um, different ways that people can set up their home and, how, and customize it in different ways. But uh, we'll have, I mean, it's taking the plug is as simple as taking it out, plugging it into an outlet, and plugging something into it. And then we'll have a lot of user manuals and stuff on how to connect with your phone and make it as simple as possible. For we, we have call centers? Yes, we'll have, we'll have customer service call centers that can help out at any point. Um, and, and the second question is, any security issues where my neighbor needs to be concerned that I can control their, their lighting and appliances and so on. So we're looking at treating the blue mesh network similar to how your airport is at home, where if a user wants to use it, they come in and ask for a password, and it'll be password encrypted, and then if you want to give your friend access to your lights and appliances with their smartphone, you can give them that password, and then you can get access to that. But it will be password encrypted, and in order to pair with it, you'll have to have the number that's written on it, because each Bluetooth chip has a specific pin and pair number that you have to put in before you can uh, connect with it. Cable. 
Yeah, I was following up on Tom's question. I mean, talk more about the initial setup. So if I get the plug, I can order it through the website or buy it somewhere and then I install it. The user has to, each user uh, in the home, so you know, let's say Jenny's is maybe a single person, let's say it's a family and multiple smartphones in the house. Each smartphone would have to be synced individually, right? Yeah. Uh, and then what about the actual appliances themselves? Do they have to be, um, well, how do you build a blue mesh network? Do the appliances have to have um, Bluetooth as well or no? The appliances, no. So it will, the only Bluetooth will be in the plug itself, and that will be able to control on-off, dimming, power measurement, things like that. Okay. But controlling appliances like an oven or a microwave, uh, you'll, you won't be able to do that. Um, however, we are looking further down the line of trying to get into OEMs and trying to get our technology actually built in so you can have control over features like so that. So initially it's an on-off switch. In, initially okay. it's an on-off and being able to read the amount of power yeah. that it's consuming. And then what about the drain on the uh, phone itself? Uh, Bluetooth 4.0 technology is, as you know, is really low power. Bluetooth in general is low power. Uh, we've used our phone. We've done tests where we connect it throughout the whole day and walk around the house and stuff, and we have no power issues. But with Bluetooth on, there's about a 5% difference in battery consumption on your phone. But the way we're trying to do it is it's not actively uh, communicating with all the devices. So when it's not communicating, it uh, consumes less power. And even on our hardware side, we don't want it to consume power. So our microprocessor and our Bluetooth uh, module, they go into sleep mode almost. Um, and they consume less than a milliwatt. OK, thanks. Go ahead, John. One of the issues that comes to mind is that it's difficult to convince people to pay money up front to save modest amounts of energy. And the obvious example is energy-efficient light bulbs, which are more expensive but promise savings. Um, how do you convince people to spend money on something up front, given that I believe it's my impression that energy-efficient light bulbs have not overtaken the market because people just don't want to spend more money for that, that light bulb? So, uh, as we, so one of our main functions is allowing people to save money. Um, and we, compared to things like energy-saving light bulbs and solar panels, we actually have a much quicker rate of return on investment. Um, but we're hoping that, along with the energy benefits, that we'll be able to convince you with the ability to customize your home in different ways, the added benefit of the App Store and our self-learning algorithm, which will be a subscription fee, but it will be monitoring your daily habits and routines and coming up with new ways that you can save money that you wouldn't even think of customizing your house. And it will do it all on its own. Could you just offer one thought on that? I mean, I just, it's not a question, just a comment. I, from just investing in consumer Internet companies for several years now, it, I would say if you can figure out um, that entertainment as opposed to cost savings is your primary benefit, yeah. value prop, I think you might do better. Uh, people spend in order, you know, lots of money on entertainment television and not much on energy-efficient light bulbs, mm -hmm. surprisingly. Surprising. <laughs> Tom? What do you guys think the biggest risk to the business plan is? Uh, I would say our biggest risk is somebody like a Google or an Apple coming out with an app store for your home. Um, however, we do know that Google is coming out with an Android at home. We know that their light bulbs are going to be priced in the $125 to $150 range. So our main goal is we understand that our hardware is going to be difficult to protect. So we want to keep our hardware costs low. Um, get that out in as many people's hands and make money off of our value-added software and subscriptions. 
Um, so I say that would be one of the biggest risks. And also, uh, currently, we don't have any business majors. So we're looking for somebody to add to the team that can help us with some of the big business decisions that we'll be faced with. Yeah, I think also... Sorry, go ahead. I say the competitors you identified um, earlier were U.S.-centric competitors, I believe. Is anybody using this technology uh, globally? Uh, from our research, there's nobody using Bluetooth home automation um, to create a whole system for your automated home. Thanks. Also, to add to your uh, question, um, I think getting developer traction will also be one of our key uh, um, initial uh, pushes, we're, we're going to get, as the number of developers is key to how our business runs because we want as many apps as possible out in our uh, app market and we want to market heavily to developers and have a very good uh, presence in online social media uh, and blogs to get uh, early adopters for our technology, especially on the developer front. Exit strategy? Um, uh, well, we, we're looking at maybe uh, being bought by a company like an Insteon or a Creston that has these home automation features, um, but they're looking to add on in like an app store um, type of way and in a whole new automation way. One more question? Okay. Uh, thank you very much. Bright blue. Well, hello everybody. Uh, my name is Peter Hartman and I'm the chair of the local MIT Enterprise Forum. Um, before um, I say a few words, I just want to congratulate the TMP uh, team here for putting this uh, new venture competition together. I mean, it's awesome. It really is. I think we should give them a great applause. So, um, we're very honored to be a part of this event, and MIT, of course, uh, is the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, and we are one of 28 chapters in the world, and uh, we've been here in Santa Barbara for about 26 years, and um, our mission is very straightforward, and uh, we work with entrepreneurship, and we do that in a couple of ways. Um, we have a motto basically saying that we educate, we connect, and then we inspire entrepreneurs in our community. And we do that with nine events that we put together every year uh, in terms of education. So um, I wanted to plug a little bit about our upcoming event before we get into the award. Uh, we have an event here next Wednesday. Uh, May the 16th is going to be about a company that actually came out of UCSB. It's called Transform. And Transform is a very up-and-coming company and uh, are doing some great things here in the community. And we're going to do a, a, a study of what they are doing in their market and so on. And uh, I'd like to see you coming to that event. Uh, it's going to be at the Carrillo Art Center down at the uh, Carrillo Beach, um, and um, we start at 5 o'clock and runs to 8 o'clock. So I hope to see you all there. The other thing I want to say is that we have another event coming up on May 20th, 
which also happens to be around UCSB, believe it or not. It's about um, one of the um, biggest issues right now in clean technology and so on, and that is uh, energy storage. And we have some great uh, presenters talking about that, and um, I hope to see you in those events as well. So um, talk a little bit about the award here, and then I get off the stage. Uh, we decided at our board uh, that we wanted to do something for social entrepreneurship in the community. So we put together an award uh, to uh, promote that, and this is actually the first year. And we hope that we will be able to grow this because I think that the social entrepreneurship is a growing sector in entrepreneurship in general. And um, I was fortunate enough to be out here uh, on the pitches that was done uh, going into this new venture competition, and a lot of the pitches was around that. So we will see a lot of doing well by doing good. So we have reviewed um, all the uh, folks that started in the new venture competition and the semifinalists, and uh, we have picked one uh, winner. And I'm going to let one of our judges here, Gideon, come up and um, introduce uh, the winner and uh, say a few words about why we picked them. And uh, I'm very pl pleased to introduce Gideon. I could, I could lean down really far or just yell for all of you. Um, well, I'm really honored to be here. I have to say, first of all, that this was a really tough decision. I know that's a little bit cliche for a judge to say, but in this case, it's, it's very true. Um, there were some great teams, and there were actually two or three teams that could have won this award. But being that it's our first year having this award, we really wanted to pick a team that we felt uh, really embodied what we believe this award is going to be, which is consistent with the mission of the MIT Enterprise Forum, which is to foster entrepreneurship specific, specifically around technology in the Central Coast, as well as uh, the social entrepreneurship component, which is really about changing the world through entrepreneurship and hopefully leveraging technology in our case to do that. So uh, without uh, further words, I'm going to announce that uh, we gave the award this year to Forget-Me-Not Sourcing. Congratulations, guys. Thank you very much. Good job. Thank you. Yeah. Good job. Congratulations. And we wish you a lot of luck, and hopefully this will be one of many checks that you're able to collect. <laughs> Thank you. It's great. Okay, now for the awards that are being presented to those six wonderful companies that presented <clears throat> just in the last couple of hours. Uh, just My name is Henry Dubroff. I'm the editor and owner of the Pacific Coast Business Times weekly business publication for the Central Coast. And I would be remiss if I didn't introduce a member of our team, uh, Stephen Nellis, our senior editor and technology editor who's here covering today. 
And we have a couple of sample publications for you to take with you as you leave. And you can always sign up or find us at www.pacbiztimes.com. Now, it's my pleasure uh, to introduce Mike, reintroduce Mike, who will present uh, our Market Pull Awards uh, for 2012. So please introduce, please welcome Mike Panisis, who's going to come on stage and hand out some cash. Thanks, Henry. Uh, I think what we're going to do for the, the teams, um, we'll do the photos afterward. So once you receive your award, hang off to the side, and we'll, we'll, take, some, we'll take some photos. But we'll get, we'll get uh, right to the awards now. So I'd like to get uh, the teams all up on stage. We'll do this all at once. It'll be like American Idol style. Uh, Gifinity, we might not be able to fit all of you, but we'll try. <laughs> No, you can't put the booth there. <laughs> okay, so here we go. We'll start with third place. Goes to Speckle. Okay, second place, which uh, which means that the other one gets first. But um, if the if uh, what, what's the Miss America thing? If first place isn't able to fulfill, <laughs> then second place gets their money. Uh, second place goes to Gefinity. So that leaves us with first place. Um, I, I have to say something about this team, because um, throughout this competition, from the very beginning, we looked at this and said, birding? Really? <laughs> and, and every step of the way, they, they, not, only, they, they not only impressed us with, with, uh, with the technical part of what they were doing, but with the business part as well. And, um, and I'm pleased to see them up here, and I, and I think that this is a deserving first place. All the teams are deserving, but, um, but uh, I'm, I'm thrilled to see uh, birdies up there. So first place to birdies. Okay, so if the market pool guys would exit uh, stage whatever that way is, uh, we'll, uh, we'll take some more photos. And uh, thanks very much to everyone. Thank you. You're welcome. Good job. Good job. Okay, I, after this next group, uh, we're going to award the Tech Push Awards, and then a grand prize. Um, and then we still have People's Choice Awards, so stick around. The fun has just begun. Before I introduce uh, Bob York to do the Tech Push Awards, 
<clears throat> I do think we ought to have uh, our judges, our judging panel, raise your hands, be recognized. Are we all here? Give them. Give them a round of applause. They did a great job. So now, uh, my other partner in crime in this venture, Bob York, is going to present the uh, Tech Push Awards. This is the fun part, and thanks, Henry, for being a great moderator today. I hope you're ready to sign up for uh, next year as well. Uh, so let's see. Let's get all the Tech Push teams back up here on the stage. And we'll do the same thing again with the photos. Um, we'll announce the winners now, and then we'll do the photos off, off cue over here. So let's see. We got bright blue, peel tech, and app scale. Okay. All right. So for the third place winner for Tech Push, we have app scale. Okay, second place, which, and as Mike said, this kind of gives away first place, right? So, um, second place goes to Bright Blue. Of course, that leaves Appeal Tech as the number one choice in Tech Push. And this, this number one uh, award in Tech Push is sponsored by our uh, Materials Research Lab and, um, and Dow Chemical uh, on campus as a big funder of materials research. So uh, this was a coincidence, okay? These guys are materials research scientists and chemical engineers, um, but the judges didn't know about the sponsorship when they voted them first. So congratulations. And Hazel or Craig Hawker, if you're around, we want you in some pictures um, with, with, yeah, come on up, come on up, come on up. Sorry, I didn't, didn't recognize you, thank you. Yeah, come over here with, the, with your winners. Hazel is representing the Materials Research Lab on campus. Thank you. <laughs> so that leaves Grand Prize and People's Choice Award. Um, so let's see. The teams, you can leave the stage, but we want the, all the teams to stay close by, okay? And um, Mike, do you want to join us up here? Yeah. Okay. Great. So you want to do the honors for grand for, prize? For you can do the grand okay. prize. I'll do the okay. people's choice. Okay. So grand prize is our top award this year for the best team in the competition. And that went to Appeal Technologies. Congratulations. Woo! That's what. So you get another big check. Yeah, double so, up. Yeah. Let's move over there a little so that okay. this doesn't block. Yeah. yeah. There we go. 
Great. Good All job. Right. Congratulations. All right. Well done, guys. Well done. We want to do more pictures off. I'd, I'd like to thank everyone for participating in the, uh, the technological part of the evening. Uh, the texting voting worked swimmingly. We had 167 votes. Uh, it was pretty close, uh, but there was a clear winner of the People's Choice Award, and that team is Bright Blue. That stagecraft really worked. I think Ben won it. I just wanted to remind everybody that, um, you know, first and foremost, this is an educational competition. Um, some of these teams may go on to start the companies, and we hope they do. And if they do, there's a lot of in-kind awards to complement the cash awards they just got with a, a number of our local sponsors. Uh, Stradling Yaka, for example, has contributed a number of um, a, a, a substantial amount of support for legal expenses. Uh, Ventura Technology Center uh, and the new Santa Barbara Incubator are offering some space, too. Uh, we've got some accounting services with Bartlett, Pringle, and Wolf. Dunn and Bradstreet has contributed some, um, some in-kind awards. We've got uh, Southern California IP, who's here today, has contributed some in-kind awards, Steve Saraboff and his partners. Uh, so we've really got a number of uh, support service awards for these young entrepreneurs if they do decide to start their companies, and we hope they do. And uh, look for great things from them, because I, I, I'm sure you feel the same way I do. I, I was just blown away by the quality of their presentations today. And just thinking of myself as a junior or a senior uh, in college, um, they're way more poised and mature than I ever was. Um, so congratulations again to all the teams, and thank you all for coming and making this a great event. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.